Hello, and welcome to the Faith is Strength podcast. I'm your host, Nochi Mandel, and I'm joined today by my beloved and cherished wife, Sharon. Sharon, thank you for joining. You're welcome. The date of this recording is Monday, January 27th of 2020. I think this may be the first recording in 2020, and the topic being Aliyah. Whoo! Aliyah. Such a big topic. I recently recorded part one of a mini-series about Zionism, and in that I describe briefly my love for the land. What I have not mentioned so much is my deep and intrinsic desire to move to the land of Israel. The reasoning being primarily theological and spiritual. I believe that Jews belong there, not necessarily everyone, Jews. Jews belong in Israel, it's a Jewish state. Uh, as mentioned, we pray daily for it, and now we have the opportunity to be there. So making an Aliyah has been part of my life, my future, for many, many years. Ever since I learned Jewish theology and spirituality, I had Israel in my crosshairs, and it was just a matter of time before I could get myself here. With Hashem's loving help, this is the first recording in the Holy Land. I feel so blessed, so happy, so at home. However, making an Aliyah is a journey. It's not a one-action thing. It's something that requires so many attributes, so many steps, especially to do it with a life partner, a spouse, a family, perhaps, which I have the blessing of. And in this episode, part one, I want to share not just the Aliyah process, tips and tricks and all kinds of aspects of actually making such a big move, but we'll also get to hear from my wife from the other perspective. It's so common for rabbis, podcasters, authors to share and write, express, put things into literature that is consumed by the masses, that has a lot to do with the other side, the other half of the relationship, the other side of the family. But how often do we get to hear from them? With Sharon by my side, we'll be able to trek the journey of making Aliyah together, go through all the thoughts, the struggles, the uncertainties, every aspect of it. More than anything, this is this little series is going to be spread out over probably a couple years because I'm not in a position to be able to share right now what it's like to make an Aliyah two years in because I'm not there yet. However, I don't want to lose sight or forget all the little intricate, funny details along the way. That's why I'm choosing to start it now. So while I still remember, while it's still fresh on my mind, the stigmas, the thoughts, and all the stuff that I, that we had before we left, bringing it over into our pilot trip, which is what we're officially on right now, and then when I officially make an aliyah, and then a half a year down the road or a year later, we could continue this journey and, and continue to document it and express it as we go along. So that's essentially what's happening. This is part one because I'm not a veteran on making aliyah. I'm sharing my journey as I go through it maybe with a delay of a couple weeks or a couple months. So in this episode, we're going to start at the outset, in the really early stages of desiring, thinking about Israel, how that manifested and changed our lives, how we adjusted, and we're going to work our way through into how it becomes a reality, and of course, all the technicalities in between. Thank you for tuning in. Now let's buckle up to get started. I'm really excited for the opportunity to be able to share my podcast with my wife. Being able to record with a partner 
in general on various topics is going to be very, very beneficial. Because, for example, on a topic like this, making Aliyah, where you're doing it with someone, you could hear opinions from the other side. Um, if I ever talk about relationship-related topics, instead of just hearing one-sided, you get to hear from both sides. So there's definitely a lot of benefits, and I'm excited about that. The first section of me sharing about our Aliyah journey pertains more to me because my journey with regards to making Aliyah started so many years ago when I was a teenager, essentially. I only met Sharon about eight years later, and it's only 10 years later that we're actually making the move. So there's a large portion of this topic that doesn't pertain to her. But when she does come into the picture, it would actually be interesting to note the difference in appeal to the land of Israel difference in humans that move to the land of Israel, meaning the reasoning behind my move, my love for Israel, my journey is not the next person's journey. Hearing various perspectives could help shed some light, perhaps onto your journey. You may be able to relate to one more than the other. My journey began when I was about 17, when I started getting educated about Judaism and spirituality and Hashem, and specifically learning Rabbi Nachman's teachings there are a lot of advocates for living in the land of Israel. Rabbi Nachman is just one of them. He was a huge proponent, and he said some, some pretty strong things. Not just him. There are others, but, you know, things along the lines like a Jew who doesn't really desire or yearn for the land of Israel really has no share in the land of Israel in terms of when Mashiach comes or the Messianic era, right? Because how can you be a Jew, cry about Jerusalem and Israel every day, but not really want to go. It's hypocritical. Now, to the contrary, if, if you do have an appreciation for the land, if you do love the land, where is the desire? Where are the actions that are helping getting you closer? So on and so forth. Clearly, in the past, it was very difficult to move. The fighting, the travel, endless myriad of reasons why we couldn't move very easily. And despite all of that, there were individuals who did. But nowadays... What's the excuse? So, of course, many excuses pop into people's minds, and we're going to address a lot of it because since we're doing the move, we, we have the ability to, to share our thought processes as we went through all of that thinking. So back to the beginning. I get educated. I start to fall in love with Judaism, our land, our people, our tradition, and consequently, I start to build my desire However, desire is not enough. With desire came a ton of prayer. And this is when I'm a teenager. I'm not even married for the first time. I don't have children. It's just a very far-fetched dream. I want to move to Israel. I had been in Israel a couple times, maybe even recently. We're going back 10 years, but recently back then. So I had a little bit of a perspective of what Israel looked like, the culture. And I wanted to go fantasized about it, desired it, but that wasn't enough. A ton of personal prayer, years of personal prayer, praying for the land, praying to have the zechut, the merit to be able to move there. And then in the mix of all of this, life happens. You start dating, you get married, you fall into obligations, daily obligations, making money, and it just became years of waiting for the right date. But this is a very important part of the journey, very, very important part to emphasize on. Even if you have the desire and you want to move, especially if you're young, it's not always around the corner. Sometimes it's, it's the long road, and we have to be okay with that. Not everybody merits to move 
right away. Not everybody merits to move within 10 years nor 20. I personally know someone who prayed, I believe it was about 15 years, until one day his wife came to him and said, I'm ready to go. Can we imagine what that means? 15 years dedicated prayer for being able to move to the land of Israel, the land of our home. We can't imagine what that means. I can imagine because I did it for five to 10 years. Never lost sight, never lost hope. Always knew that I was going to go. It was just a matter of when. I also attracted the land of Israel. Thought about it, felt it, absorbed myself in that culture. Learned to love the language, even though I hardly understand a lick. Learned to appreciate the culture, even though it's very different from American culture. And it just took a ton, an absolute ton of belief and faith for year after year, believing that you're still going to end up there, despite how difficult it may seem unrealistic it may seem, so on and so forth. One of the things that held me back during those five to ten years of desiring, one of the biggest things was money. So there's an area of conversation, a noteworthy conversation, it's the stigmas. It stems from lack of experience and lack of knowledge on the topic, but it's a stigma nonetheless, and it's very prevalent amongst most people who think about moving. And I lived with it for many years. It's the money factor. I always said when I had the money, when the money comes, I'll go. And to me, what that meant as an entrepreneur, somebody who works on my own business, what that meant to me was that I needed an established company here in the United States that could cover my income. Essentially, I wanted an American income to be able to live in the land of Israel. And I put that roadblock. I always said I was not ready. I don't have the money yet. I'm not going to be able to make a living. I just wanted to throw that out there. There's a lot of stigmas, and we're going to get to those. But this was, this was the only one that really held me back. Now, what changed? So let's go through a quick history. I started out when I was about 17, 18. I learned about the land. I want the land. I desire the land. I'm attracting the land. I believe in the land. I have faith. I'm learning about the land. But none of that is enough because I'm not actually doing anything. And I'm not doing anything because I'm telling myself I don't have the money to do anything. Yet, I didn't let the belief or the desire die out. During that period, between 18 and 25 or 26, I had gotten married. I had a child. I had a kid, one kid. Some years later, I split up and got divorced. This is about three years ago. A year after being on my own, I went to a Pesach program, which is where I met Sharon. Me and Sharon started talking. Interestingly enough, just on a side note, one of the first things, one of the first things I had asked Sharon, because I knew how much the land meant to me, was whether or not she was the type of person that wanted to live in the United States her entire life, or she's the type of person to move to another country. You remember when I asked you that? I do. It may, it may have come across a little weird that I, that I would ask something like that, but for two people who had just met, I was just, you know, kind of probing what kind of, what kind of person I'm talking to. But to me, it meant it had a lot of intrinsic value. It was funny that I had threw that out there really early, because I don't think I would entertain a potential relationship with someone, if that person had no desire, I wouldn't go down that rabbit hole. Well, when you had first asked me that question, it didn't come across as weird at all because my answer was, no, I'm not the type of person that wants to live in the United States. As a matter of fact, I always wanted to live somewhere else. So I thought you were just asking about my personality, how adventurous I am. And essentially I was, (laughs) but there was actually a, you know, I guess you could say a hidden motive behind it because... That's, that's really funny. To my luck, you were open to moving. Now, I guess it's appropriate to mention that Sharon 
I had never thought about Israel at that point in time. However, she had thought about the idea of moving in general. So right. when, I, when, when our relationship did progress and Israel started becoming more of a topic, it was an easy topic because it was just the notion of moving somewhere. For me, it was a specific location, but for her, it was the opportunity to, I guess you could say, learn another culture or whatever. As the months went by that we were dating, the idea of Israel grew on me. When you had first asked me the question if I would move somewhere else, another country, I didn't know you were talking about Israel. And then I quickly came to learn that that is the destination you had in mind. So then I thought about it. Didn't weigh heavily on me at all. And as we started spending more time together and getting more serious, I really started considering it. And my desire to go there grew, which I'll talk about later. Yeah, that's really cool. We're also lucky in that sense because you have some family there, which I suppose makes things easier in a certain way because obviously family, friends, and all that stuff are big topics when you talk about moving to another country. Sharon has family in Israel. So although she never thought about moving to Israel, again, the prospect of doing so may, may have been a little lighter because she, she already has the personality of someone who doesn't want to live where she was born. She wants to move to another country, right? And on top of that, you have family. So it's actually really cool, you know, when you just look at it from a divine perspective, the way that the entire story unfolded. As we're going to try to share, there's so many moving parts to this. I'll try to cover, you know, all the important ones really interesting just to observe how it unfolded so here i met this person i already know right off the bat that she's open to moving i know there's not going to be much of a resistance there and i'm mentioning this because it's all too common for one partner to learn about and to educate themselves about the land of israel and build up a desire for the land of israel but then when they want to move there's a strong resistance from the partner and there's ways to work through that but they're very difficult. They're very tedious and they're very long. So thank God I'm not dealing with that, but I'm aware of it. I know about it. Thank God we don't have that, but I could empathize with those who do. So even when we met, I was still with that impression, that stigma that we can't go. You know, this is already when when we're talking about this notion of moving, when we would move, you know, do you move before you have a kid? How, How deeply do you settle into, I mean, let me just fast forward, right? So we we date for two years and then we get married and this was pretty recently. So we get married. Now the conversation of moving is, is a serious and evolved conversation. But one of the things that I still had on the outset, even with you, was that I don't want to move until my business is established, until I have an American income. So even with a partner who's ready to go essentially tomorrow, right? You always said you're ready to, ready yeah. to go. I always said, I'm ready. When you are, I'm ready. I'm waiting on you. And with that with that open ticket, it was like, oh, okay, what's my excuse now? Well, the excuse always was the money. The money, though, is, is attached to a stigma, and we're going to talk about that. But there are other stigmas. The stigmas are a very important part of all of this. And, of course, we're still talking about my journey here. We're almost done. We, we just flew through 10 years, and we're at the end now. I met Sharon, and I already know that the door is open, but we're just finishing up. With that, I want to mention some of the stigmas, and they pertain to each individual on a different level, and these pertain to me. So there was the, the worry of money, and it's a very, very important worry, very common, I mean. Uh, there's And that ties into career, but I guess you could look at that as a separate thing. A lot of people are very focused on career. So education and career, you know, what am I going to do in Israel? I can't fill pitas with falafels. I'm not going to, you know, flip burgers all day. So what am I going to do there? Like, what is there to do in Israel, right? These are stigmas. And then there's culture stigmas, you know, 
I hate Israeli culture. They're angry. They're rude. All that, all that nonsense. And then there's comfort stigmas. You can't be comfortable in Israel, right? These are very, very common. And even for myself, I can say for myself, reflecting onto my own own thoughts, I may have written some of those off in a sense of not caring, but I still bought into the stigma of some of them. I actually believe some of them. And then there's location-related stigmas, which I'm going to get into further later, where the foreigner, the American who visits Israel, sees a certain part of Israel. And when they think of Israel and they think of Aliyah, they think of specific locations, not understanding or not realizing that there's a much broader and bigger perspective and spectrum in terms of living, location, quality of life. And then there are stigmas that relate to security and safety, because we hear on the news, you have the rockets flying, you have stabbing attacks, so on and so forth. So there's a ton of stigmas you know, related to that. It's not a safe place. I can't live there. So that basically summarizes my journey from when I was a teenager until I'm in my mid-20s. You know, I meet Sharon and we're dating and the thought of Israel is coming together. More of what I shared pertains to a little before we started dating. And of course, a lot changed over the past two, three years that we're dating because a ton had to have changed in order for us to get here, in order for us to be where we are right now recording this. A lot had to have changed. And, and that's why we're able to discuss this right now. Next, we'll listen to Sharon and hear a little bit about her journey, her perspective, before we start going into the further stages, which is where our visions align and we're able to start planning and having serious conversation about it. A little bit of how my journey went. When I was a teenager, I always went to certain sleepaway camps and certain schools that were very Zionistic and taught me a love of Israel. So growing up, Israel was always a focus in my family. As Nate said, I do have family that lives in Israel because our teachers, counselors, parents, relatives all taught us to love Israel and want to move here. Now, even though I have two siblings that chose to move to Israel, I never actually considered it. I always had my love of Israel, that was one thing, and my love of and desire to move to another country as something separate. Then once I had met Nate and he had asked me that question, if I wanted to move to another country or stay in America, my natural response was, of course I want to move somewhere else. I always wanted to. And then I had to think, but would I go to Israel? I don't know. Maybe. Why not? The more I thought about it, I realized how appealing it was. The more I heard him talk about it, the more of a discussion it became between us between friends, talking with my family, my eyes opened, my heart opened to the land, and I started to see more and more beauty in it and hear more aspects that drive people to the land, and I developed my own desire to want to go there. And that only occurred within a few months. So once Nate and I were serious about our relationship moving forward, talking about marriage, the conversation of where we were going to have that marriage and where we were going to bring up that family, it was obvious to both of us it was going to take place in Israel. And that's when our real planning started to happen. That's amazing. I mean, the whole notion, first of all, of growing up in a school where they promote, I, I suppose you could say it's Zionism that they're, that they're promoting, but the focus for me is not Zionism per se, you know, in the... In the technical term it's the love for the land of israel it's love of jewish people it's love of heritage growing up in zionistic schools is beautiful one of the things i wish is that i was taught hebrew growing up 
because we know now how much of a factor it is. And I always wish I had known Hebrew in the past 10 years. I try taking some time to learn. It's difficult when you're older. We're going to we're gonna take Olpan soon. But if I would just freaking know how to speak Hebrew from school. So there are schools that, that do it. A great job at that. On the note of, uh, on the topic of schools, I was taught some Hebrew in my schools. I didn't use it, so I lost a lot of it. And yes, in my schools and in my home, we celebrated Israeli holidays just as lively as we did Jewish holidays because all Israeli holidays were Jewish holidays. Mm, love it. Makes me want to cry. Um, you know, there's that aspect. And then when you spoke about how you opened your heart and you developed a love for the land, that reminded me of something, you know, some people by nature intrinsically don't like the idea of Israel. They don't like the land not really rooted in anything substantial. It's just a feeling they have. It's just, I guess it's the impression that they get from all of what they hear in the news and social media. I think a huge part of opening up your mind and your soul to the notion of making an aliyah requires for these types of people who struggle with this to rethink really like just bottom line rethink their notion or their stigma of the land by allowing yourself that little seed to just think for a second that maybe it's a beautiful land and maybe you could live a good life there by allowing yourself to think that way so true i think it opens up the doors for endless endless possibilities but if you don't allow yourself just that little seed, then you'll be fighting with yourself. You'll be struggling with yourself throughout the entire journey of going or not ending up going or even thinking about going. So planting that seed was so important because for me, I actually thought that I did not want to go to Israel. I thought I'd end up somewhere else. And just by considering it, hearing about it, opening my mind just that little bit and getting attracted to it and then focusing on the positives and then imagining myself there. Could it work? Of course it can work. Why couldn't it work? Why would you even think that it shouldn't? And then thinking positively, just planting that seed and opening my mind allowed me to see all the beauty that I see that now I'm so driven to be here and only here. Yeah. Planting the seed, that notion, I've spoken to others who have Israel in their crosshairs and I've shared that little tidbit with them. It's a very, very important part. We have to know that we have stigmas, biases, and just like with all things in broadening our minds and perspective and becoming more open-minded, planting a little seed, being a little open-minded and rethinking things from a different perspective could and evidently will change everything. So we dated for quite some time, close to two years. We already started talking about Israel on a more serious note, probably a year in or a little bit further. And essentially, you could say that's where the planning kind of initiated. We start having some very far-fetched, far-out thoughts about how you conceptualize planning a move like that. And then what happens is as you get closer and closer to actually doing it, things obviously change. So what you plan initially is not how it works out. And our original plan didn't work out, but it's worked out so perfectly now. Right. So so what we thought initially didn't work out, but then what all of those steps led to did work out so beautifully. Um, that's the concept of taking that first step. And we've taken that step in various places. And you see it time and time again. You take that first step, and then Hashem shows you the next one. You kind of plunge in. God shows you where to go next. And then you're like, whoa, 
you know, I didn't see that before. Of course not, because you are around the corner. You come around the bend. Oh, that's where I need to go. You come around the next bend. Oh, that's where I need to go. So we've been experiencing a lot of that, which is just utterly beautiful. We had wanted to make Aliyah by a certain date and certain things had happened that did not allow us to. And it allowed for this wonderful pilot trip to gear us into what section is perfect for us. Yeah, so the initial stages of planning have to begin by setting a date. This is a difficult thing to do, but it needs to be done. Without a date, it's all speculation. Even if your date is a year out or three years out, at least there's a date. When you don't have a date and you just continue to talk about Israel year after year, all it is is talk. So the first step of action, the first course of action is set a date, make it a realistic date and set a date. And that is what we actually did. We set a date. Choose a month. It doesn't have to be an exact date. Choose a month. Once you set a date, you can start the organization process. You have to organize a lot of things. You have to organize your life. You have to organize the move. You have to organize your belongings, so on and so forth. And while you go through the process of planning and organizing, all the stigmas that we talked about, which we're not done talking about because those, you know, that's like the most important part here. Remember, I still have these stigmas. We're planning, but the stigmas are there. These stigmas slowly fade away as you take those steps. If you have complete faith, you walk forward, trust in God, organize and plan, basically do your hishtadlut, you do your part, the stigmas, every, all the worries start to fade away. And one of the main worries, money, it was not figured out yet. So mind you, we have a date, we have a plan, but there's no plan for money. Interestingly enough, during this period, I came up with and founded my startup called Oki, which is a perfect model that I could operate from anywhere in the world. But I had no concept of Oki when I started planning. This is to give you an example of how these things unfold. Take the necessary steps. It's literal blind faith, trusting that you're doing the right thing and that Hashem will help you along the journey. And that is what we did. Now that I'm here and I'm a lot more educated on the topic, I know that the money stigma, the money worry, is not such a founded worry to begin with. There's career and jobs in Israel in abundance, potentially even more than in America. But that was never my focus because I didn't want to work for someone here. I'm an entrepreneur. I want to run my own business. But the thought that you can't make enough money in Israel to survive is a ridiculous thought to begin with. And we know that now, but I didn't know that then. Neither did I even see all the divine blessings that were unfolding as they were happening. I see them a little bit in retrospect, maybe a week or two or three or a month after they pass. But when you see them, you see them clearly. So I was, we were diving in head first. It's going to work out. Things will align. And guess what? Things are aligning. Another part of the money education, you know, that we've that we've gone through in the, in the past weeks is the fact that you may not need the money that you think you needed. You may not need to earn as much. So it is true that the average Israeli salary may be lower, but you don't need as much to live. Cost of living is less in Israel. Although cars and owning a car, it might be more expensive in Israel. The more affordable solution is to go via public transportation. But living in America, one doesn't think, let me take public everywhere because it's not convenient. It's not built unless you live in New York City. It's not built to easily get around using public. Israel is. And it's 
dirt cheap, the busing system. Yeah, we found that out real quick. And I had mentioned to someone, you know, the busing here seems affordable. And he's like, no, it's cheap. There's a distinction between affordable and cheap. Israeli public transportation, the country is built, the whole infrastructure is built around public, is cheap, meaning it's underpriced. We took a three-hour, well, two-and-a-half-hour bus ride for the equivalent of about $4 right. on Saturday night. Yeah, then you, on top of how cheap it is, you could find these, these unique bus rides, certain ones that travel less frequently that are pennies. You know, imagine going from Rockland County to New York City for 2 $3 with a train or a bus. Public transportation is, is huge here in Israel, but then that ties into the comfort issue, right? Because an American thing, she, I always thought, I, I can't do public. Of course I need a car if I'm in Israel. I grew up with cars. But that's a stigmatism that you had, something that was keeping you because you know the cost of cars were expensive in Israel and you thought you needed one. It was a stigma. Once you got here and you allowed yourself to live in the land the way it's designed to be lived in, you realize and you come around to the thought and the notion, wait, I don't need a car. I can take public. And now I believe you're coming to like it. That's part of the beauty. It's, it's part of the things that change in your perspective when you allow yourself to see from a different angle. Of course, a car in some cases are convenient. It's a luxury per se, but we really are enjoying public now. I love the fact that I'm in a new country. I have no clue what's flying because I suck at Hebrew at the current moment. And I'm able to get door-to-door -door service with buses. They have a move it it's called Move It. It's an application that runs their public transportation. And you want to go from point A to point B anywhere in the country. It gives you your options, your routes. And typically, if you're in any significant town or city, you're able to jump on a bus within 5-10 minutes. Now, does transportation take a little bit longer in the bus? Yes. yes. But the money you save and the convenience of it is unspeakable. A vehicle in the United States could be a $1,000 expense. On a cheap lease, so you're spending three, four hundred on a lease, two, three hundred on insurance, four, five hundred on gas, and then you have your occasional maintenance, close to a thousand dollars a month. Do you imagine cutting out a thousand dollars and then using public transportation that costs you forty dollars a month? If you travel a lot, it'll cost you a hundred. There are so many little aspects like these that you warm up to, I guess, if your mind is open and you do it in a laid back manner. But I haven't even gotten to that because I haven't even explained how we got here and in which kind of laid back manner we've gotten here with. You know, if a listener understands that, then they could understand where all of this is coming from. So there's a lot more to talk about in terms of stigma and how they solve themselves during your planning and organization. But first, I want to quickly run through the rest of our journey up until this point so that those listening understand where we are. And then we could track back and talk about all these intricate details. So we planned, we organized. Originally, we were going to, we had a date. We wanted to do the legal paperwork, make the Aliyah. That didn't work out. Hashem led us in another direction. So we decided pilot trip. Now, well, basically what we did is we went onto Airbnb and found a very, very affordable apartment in the Negev. We were already looking down south in Israel. We were interested in checking out south, the desert. We heard it was cheaper and it seemed like something we may like. We went onto Airbnb and I got lucky. We found something that had a 50% monthly discount. So from $2,000 a month, it was down to 1000 And on top of that, there was an additional 20% discount 
since I was the first person booking it. We ended up spending less than $1,000 for a seven-week pilot trip. The notion was that we were going to go to Israel and visit different towns, cities, learn about the place without any pressure, knowing that we're going back to the United States. We bought a two-way ticket. This was our official pilot trip. It was just a long pilot trip. We are in our pilot trip right now. We are recording three weeks into our pilot trip right now. This avenue is actually perfect for us. Now, of course, we didn't know that. This is part of what we're saying. You plan, you think you're going to figure out X, Y, and Z. God shows you a different way, but the different way is a much better way. And we see that now, obviously, all of what we're learning, everywhere we're going, the people we're meeting, everything that's coming together so beautifully, it's so much more, it's so much more organized. We feel so much better about it. It makes so much sense. And there's a lot less pressure because we're not here running around back and forth, back and forth, checking out this place. Every time we go, we experience something. We have time to let it sink in. That's one of the parts that I love about it. You go somewhere, you have your initial feelings about it, but you're not jumping to any conclusions because you're covered. We're covered for seven weeks. We have our place and we know we're going back to the States. So everywhere you go, anyone you speak to, all the opinions you hear, you let it sink in. So this is the story of what we did. Again, we got here quickly. I got to this point in the timeline quickly because I want you to understand where we are right now. But we're going to back up and go through the planning, the stigmas, the things we learn along the way some of the additional stigmas that one develops when wanting to plan to go is you almost convince yourself that you shouldn't because it's going to be hard or if you don't like it and you're stuck there what do you do if what do i do when that happens and i don't know how to solve it your mind plays tricks on you and creates these scenarios and these what ifs that kind of push you away you have to ignore that. You have to grasp it and get a hold of it and tell yourself, yes, it's going to be hard. That's okay. There are going to be mistakes made. That's okay. Can't get upset by it. It's a journey. It's not going to go perfectly. It would be boring if everything just went perfectly. Part of the excitement and the fun is the learning. And they're going to, these, your mind is going to play tricks on you and you're going to constantly be met with these negative feelings why you shouldn't go. And you have to focus when planning why you should and on the positives. Yeah, I developed a theory on this notion. We've discussed this where I say you have to, I, I say that there's, there's such a thing as a traveler's personality. I think that's what I call the traveler's personality. Yes. Right, where you have the, the types. Who are these types of people who could travel the world, right? It's the type of person that travels the world, right? It's not the person who has to be comfortable 24-7. That's not the world traveler. You know, when I recorded my episode about Oman, and I'm talking there about the discomfort, and then you have the people who need their comfort. Well, Oman's not for you then. Now, Oman is getting more and more comfortable for those who could afford it. But in that respect, different personalities are able to do different things because of their personalities. One of the personalities that a world traveler has is that they take things easy. They're almost, they not only know that they're going to bump into some hurdles along the way because every country operates differently and you're going to meet all kinds of different people and you can't communicate normally. You already know all of this. But for some reason, you're not affected by it. It doesn't bother you. Matter of fact, that's what creates the experience like you're talking about. So I always thought that it was genius and it's a very necessary tool to tap into to adapt a little bit of a traveler's personality when making a move like this. Now, I think that me and you do have a little bit of that personality to begin with. So we could go places, not stress out about the hurdles, 
and the setbacks and anything that may happen along the, the course while we're in a different country or on a different continent. But we very much so focused in on this for this trip because like you said, we knew we're going to have some screw-ups in the grocery. You know, when we come in with lemon salt mm-hmm. instead of regular salt and then you eat the food and you almost choke, it's, it's funny because you almost knew that something like that was going to happen. It's not like, oh, fuck this, I'm leaving. You know, you're not, you don't feel that. You embrace it instead of get upset <laughs> at it. So that, that, that was always my idea about the traveler's personality. And that's one of the reasons why I'm so happy about the pilot trip. Because one of the reasons why we ended up doing the pilot trip, besides for Hashem steering it this way for a trillion reasons that I don't understand, one of the reasons I do understand is that there's no pressure. If you could plan your Aliyah in a way that you're going to the land, you're making the move, which is essentially what we did, but you could call it a pilot trip because you're going back because you bought a two-way ticket. Well, guess what? I'm here two, three weeks. We don't want a ticket back. <laughs> we love it here. <laughs> if I could get a full refund, I absolutely would. I'll figure a way to get the rest of my stuff here. I'll have my friend go into my house, pack my stuff up, <laughs> and send it. Right? I mean, it's, uh, I feel at home here. And when I say my house, I mean my parents' house because we gave up our place. Right. No, that's what you could call it a pilot trip. I, we moved out of our apartment. We packed up our stuff. We know we moved. But if you need to tell yourself that you're going for a pilot trip and that then you could come back to the U.S. or that you are coming back, it relieves the pressure. So we basically played into this notion of the traveler's personality and said, look, we're world travelers now. We pack up our stuff on a pallet, throw our shit into a backpack. We're traveling now. Now, it happens to be we're going to Israel, but we then come back to the United States and I could be in Hong Kong a month later if I want to. Now, granted, we have no desire for that, but it's it's the mindset. You see, if you could tap into that mindset when making your Aliyah plans, it lightens the load. You get the benefits of feeling like you're on a vacation, even though you're not on a vacation. We're living our regular life here. We're not going to any attractions. We're not doing anything other than regular daily stuff because we really are taking the opportunity of this trip to learn the land, to learn the people, to learn the areas, to understand where we want to live and how things work. But in your mind, you don't have that pressure because you know you're going to jump back onto a flight and come back, even if you're just going back for a couple of weeks. So I actually think this traveler's personality, this personality of laid backness, this personality that you are going to bump into screw ups and mess ups and, and, and that you're ready to embrace them and to laugh them off and to make that part of the journey, really embracing that notion is a huge part of all of this. It's not a little part, it's a huge part. There's a percentage of people who make Aliyah, official Aliyahs, who come back within a year or two. So let's say 20, 40,000 people move every year from the United States and say 10, 20, or 40%, you know, I don't think it's 40, let's say 10 or 20% come back. It's a significant number. What are a thousand people coming back for? Comfort. What expectations weren't met, right? What due diligence wasn't done? I think with proper due diligence, proper planning, proper understanding of what you're getting yourself into and how to enjoy the land more than anything, not how to look at the discomforts and all this, so how to enjoy it, like we said earlier, how to plant those seeds that it's a beautiful land from a different perspective. It's a beautiful place to be in. It's a beautiful culture from a different perspective. Planting those seeds in various areas, I think, is key. So this all comes from the stigma that you were talking about of comfort, I think. Is that what you said? Comfort? Partially, yeah. The stigma of it's not going to work. Right, right. It's not going to work. That stigma. Um, It is going to work. You have to change the mindset that it will work. And it is beautiful. 
It's all law of attraction. It's positive versus negative. It's what you think you will get, what you are thinking you are attracting to yourself and living. There's another stigma I touched on a little bit. I just want to lay it to rest, which is career. Money is one thing, but career is a, is a little bit of a different thing. One thing we, we learned very quickly throughout the process of making, you know, talking to Nefesh Benefesh. Nefesh Benefesh is the agency that helps you make Aliyah, doing a ton of research, talking to people, visiting places. There's no shortage of jobs and careers. Israel is booming, not just in construction. And I'm saying construction because there's construction everywhere. The land is booming. It's not like America where you have this huge land and you are a drop in the ocean. You're coming to a land that is tiny, but is growing by tremendous proportions, which means that the percentage of your involvement, the percentage of, of change is greater and you'll be exposed to more of it. As Americans, industry, professional minded people, your ability to get involved and change the land and get a good career and excel here is so much greater than in the United States. The competition is so much lower. The infrastructure is so much lower in a certain sense. But remember, you have to come with that open mind and leave some of the expectations back in America. If you're coming from a certain position and a certain job that you expect a certain salary, you may not get that here in Israel. But there will be a place that you fit into and you might have to take a step back but ultimately, you're taking a huge step forward by being here. And that difference in the income that you feel you might feel you're missing out on, you don't notice. Because like I said, and like we've spoken about, the cost of living is different here. So don't look at the negative that you're taking a step back in a country, in a position, and focus on the fact that you... Have that there are jobs for you here. The difference in in payroll or income in a career here, for example, if you're a doctor in the United States and, and you're going to be a doctor here, the difference in income may be reflected on the difference of cost of living. So it may not be that proportional like you think. It's not like, oh, I'm going to make $20,000 less a year or $30,000 less or $50,000 less. So I'm losing you don't need that $50,000 because you're not going to incur the expense of an American lifestyle. Now, from the other perspective, like you said, it's what you value. So if you value the land, you value community, being with your brethren, and you value Jewish things, in other words, you value Israel, then you'll be happier here with a $50,000 pay cut, but having everything else you want in life. But that's not to take away from the fact that business, industry, tech, medicine, and a ton of other fields are booming here. Israel is on the top of innovation in a lot of areas of business. So the excuse that there's no career here or that there's no money here or that there's no job here is simply false. Wrap your head around the notion that you're going to need a little bit less to live and that you could get a job literally with a snap of a finger here. Another stigma that is very common is culture. Americans grow up with a certain, how do I say it? Like Need to be pleased. That's actually very true. That's not what I'm pointing at right now, but we're going to get to that. Um, sensitive. Americans are very sensitive 
uh, I guess maybe you could say emotional too, but more on the sensitive side, I think is what I'm trying to point out. Because the stigma is that the culture is cold here, angry, yelling, screaming. You know, this is how people look at Israelis, which means that, you know, if you're affected by it, because you're an American, it's because you're more sensitive. You grow up around, I guess you could say, more formality stuff like that so when you look at israelis communicating you're like well why are they yelling but they're not they're just passionate about a conversation they're having so i wouldn't make that away completely i think there's an aspect of that that is i wouldn't say true it's just different so the culture here is different but not seeing the negative in it rather just seeing the beauty of it would be would be something that i would suggest that you should focus on and accepting it for what it is once you learn to accept it, then you can start to see the positive parts in it. And then you ultimately might become a part of it, hopefully. Yeah. I experienced that a couple of years ago. Just from visiting enough, I had it had occurred to me that, you know, and I heard some comments from a couple of people, Israelis think of themselves as more straightforward and truthful, or I guess you could say direct. Direct. Yes. And then they look at Americans who are deceitful and, and they don't know how to get their point across. It's more of like a diva life. What we see as a negative, they see as a positive in this regard. Um, and if you if you wrap your head around that, like you said, you end up finding the beauty in it. So can the conversation get heated quicker in Israel? Maybe. But typically, people are very respectful. This, I would say that the stigma is a lot worse than the reality. You're not just coming to Israel and it's all yelling and screaming. It's actually very peaceful here. Even in in public, you know, we're sitting on buses. It's it's quiet. I'm, everyone's minding their own business. If there's a fender bender and two people are yelling at each other, okay. So that's that's their passion. That's their personality. They don't hate each other. They're not going to take a knife out and stab each other. They just have a more direct and passionate way of living life. And that is the culture difference. Now, once you wrap your head around these cultural differences, you can come to find beauty in it. This culture is Jewish culture. So yes, you may have accustomed yourself to secular American culture, but that's not Jews, ironically enough. Jews, as described in the Bible, are stiff-necked people, stubborn. I mean, do I have to tell you what, how Jews act? So essentially any argument against it is like, uh, I, I don't like Jews, right? What, what are you essentially saying? That you don't like Jews? You don't like how Jews act? You are a Jew. Change the way you act and you'll change the world, you know, one person at a time. The answer is not that, oh, I want to integrate into American culture and society. The answer is that you are a Jew. This is you. This is your DNA. This is how you act. We need to learn to perhaps become more respectful, perhaps become calmer, more thoughtful. But maybe we don't in the area of sensitivity. Maybe we don't. Maybe being direct and thorough and straightforward is is how Jews are and always will be. It's not something to hinder you. It's a small thing. That's why I'm saying the stigma is, is a lot more blown out of proportion than the reality. The reality is that it's peace over here. It's beautiful. It's calming. And if you get into an altercation or a debate, it might be a little bit more heated, but there's no hate. There's no disdain. It's passion. So culture is something that for very ultra sensitive people, they may have to really work to wrap their minds around it. And if you're not so sensitive, you'll be part of it before you know it. All of all of the stigmas that we just discussed are relevant in your journey. And each person and their journey to get to Israel is going to be filled with some of these stigmas and some that are just personal to them. But the thing that they all have in common is that 
once each individual opens their mind and stops fearing these stigmas and allowing these stigmas to be a cause and a reason hindering them from moving forward these stigmas start breaking down and falling apart and not becoming relevant right so not all stigmas pertain to each person um, and they're essentially rooted in fear like you said it's a certain base level of fear it's almost it's almost like fear of the unknown fear of uncertainty or, or whatever because when you are familiar with it and you are part of it it's completely meaningless did you have any stigmas regarding culture one of my biggest stigmas, I guess, was about that the land isn't safe because what does media and news, what sells newspapers and grabs people's attention? Chaos and crazy. Anytime that I've been to Israel to visit my family, maybe go on vacation, I was always told, stay away from this area, stay away from that area. Now that I'm here, you have to be smart about it. There are certain areas that you should be more weary of, but it's not... It's not dangerous to be here. As long as you're knowledgeable and are smart, every day is just wonderful. I don't wake up and think that something negative is going to happen. That's not a worry of mine. Three years ago, I I would say, like, what are you, crazy? Why do I want to go there? Now, like, pushing that stigma away and, and seeing all the good that is here and now living in the good that is here, it's it's dust. Yeah, part of it's still technically exists in certain areas security and safety is is huge stigma and a huge topic for myself because i care about it very much before i jump into that i was wondering if you had any stigmas that pertain particularly to culture did you have the impression that israelis are angry short-tempered disrespectful you know any of that stuff i've heard people say a lot of these things in my past work the majority of the families were actually israeli and i've heard the way that some of my co-workers talk about the israeli parents and the israeli dads that they are that they yell that they're mean or loud strong-minded but the truth of the matter is they're no they're no bs they're telling you and expressing to you what they want like you said more straightforward So I've heard people expressing these stigmas, but I know better. So I didn't have that fear coming here that that's what was going to happen. Interesting. Yeah. It's so prevalent. I I almost feel like anyone I've ever spoken to has that stigma. And I do agree that on a certain level, like I said, it is true. It's a different, but I, I just look at it as a difference in culture. And if you find the beauty in it, fine. If you yourself think or believe that it's intrinsically wrong to, ha- to act that way, to have that personality, then you could change. You don't have to be that way. Um, but on a global scale, the fact that a whole country, a whole people share a culture, there's nothing you could do about it. Um, and you could only, if anything, just find the beauty in between it or within it. Talking about cultures and stigmas, if you live in the New York metropolitan area, there's a huge stigma that comes along with that. People often find New Yorkers to be aggressive and in a rush, like they don't care about things. I am one of those people. and But you don't see it when you're that person. So once you come to Israel and you become part of the Israeli culture, you just become part of the culture and you don't... Yeah, you blend with it. I always say that about New York. I'm a great New Yorker. I could be disrespectful coming into JFK, TSA, acting like New Yorkers making noise, New York cops, driving down the FDR, disrespectful drivers. I could fit right in easily. I was, you know, New York mentality got to me because for some time I was in Washington. 
I know what the other side of the country feels like. I know what it's like to actually go into a gas station and somebody says hi and they want to have a conversation with you. Now, when I'm visiting from New York, I'm like, I don't want to talk to you. I'm a New Yorker. I don't have time for you. I don't have patience for you. But when I lived there, the reality of, of America, most of the country outside of the big cities, you basically experience a different culture. Westerners, country people, they're very different than city people. Two completely separate cultures. I've been in New York for so many years that I've adapted New York mentality grind your way through competition bloody fight to the top so i understand that very well but even with understanding that i always said it's not me i don't belong here i don't want to act that way i always identified more with israeli culture which is not so competitive in that sense if anything more direct truthful get a little heated and passionate no problem i can i can match your level of passion that doesn't scare me doesn't intimidate me but the competitive disregard that that you experience in new york the selfishness I always hated that. My point is, though, anyone could become part of it. And some people love it. People love New York culture. But I don't want to lose sight. Let's go back to safety and security. You know, you mentioned that that was one of your, one of your stigmas, that you, it was pretty strong. And it certainly was a big topic in my mind as well, because I care a lot about security. I care about self-protection. I think people need to learn how to protect themselves. You need to have basic self-defense skills. You have to learn awareness and all that stuff. So I'm into these topics in general. Seeing in the news, the stabbings, the shootings, the Arabs, the rockets, you know, sitting from the sidelines, sitting in America, seeing those news reports, I think about it a lot. It means a lot to me, these things, you know, how could it be improved? Is it a safe place to live? So on and so forth. But I've also been in Israel. So I know that most of the country is essentially going about their day, living in peace, not worried about rockets. And when there's an incident once a week, once a month, whatever it is, okay, you know, life goes on. Do we, does the world end? Does the country stop when, when there's an incident in America? And there is daily. And more recently, they've been targeted specifically at Jews, but do things stop? No, you go about your day. When somebody gets stabbed in Newark, New Jersey, or Jersey City, or any other hood, you don't even pay attention to that headline. It's just the daily. In Israel, it's more personal because it's Arabs versus Jews. There's that strong connotation to it, but it's the same thing essentially. You're not safe in terms of safety. I never felt you're not safe anywhere. You could be in any mall. You know, America deals with school shootings, mall shootings. You could be anywhere, anyone. If it's your time to go, God decides it's your time to go, you're going. It's not like we're in a war torn country here and there's rockets flying every day and tanks riding through the streets. Israel's a beautiful, peaceful country. And in between the peace and the beauty, there are these attacks. But you have to see past them. Just like we did when we lived in America. You, you see past it. You live beyond it. When you're here, you do the same thing. But when you're back in America and you hear these things happening in Israel, that's the focus. You have to change your focus. Yeah, because when you're in America, the focus is everything but real life and then when you're here you're in real life so all of a sudden you're thinking about life and you're not focusing on those other things so i was very much that person you know i looked at israel and i, and I thought it's crazy that a lot of the israelis ignore or try to pretend like they could go about their days and nobody's out to kill them like why don't all of them carry a weapon? This is the way that I think. Before we came to Israel, I did research about carrying a fixed blade. Israel is very strict when it comes to carrying blades. You could carry a little two, three inch folding pocket knife if it makes you feel better. 
But in Israel, you're going through security all the time, malls, shopping centers, so on. And you can't just carry a combat knife with you. I have my little hiking, my, you know, it's like a four or five inch fixed blade Gerber knife, double edge. With all that's going on here, I'd feel safer to walk around and have some form of, you know, force multiplier. Most attacks here are knife attacks, and I'd 100% feel a lot safer if somebody's yielding a knife at me. I could pull out my own and, you know. But the research and the reality showed me that it's illegal, and I'll get in trouble, and I won't get through security with it. So my fantasies, my worries, they became nullified when I realized that there's nothing I could do about it. I would have to be a citizen here for one to two years before I could carry a weapon, and even to carry then requires various other aspects. So I, I don't carry a knife with me. And what did I say a minute ago? You start dealing with life. You start forgetting about the security so much. Now, I'm a very hyper-aware person. So yes, when we're in transitional spaces, I'm, I'm always you know aware of my surroundings and stuff like that. But I don't live my days in my life over here worrying about carrying a weapon on me. So my paradigm is changing. My mindset is changing because I looked at Israelis and asked those questions that I myself am starting to learn now. The majority of the country are just going about their days and their lives. They never encounter an attack. But everybody has, you know, knows someone or knows someone who knows someone who's had something happen to them because it's a small country. But regardless of what the Arabs do, how many attacks they carry out, it doesn't change the fact that the country goes on and people are living here happy and in peace. There was a study. Israel is in the top 10 of happiest countries, happiest residents living in countries in the world. And you would think that's absurd. I believe it. Um, but they've done these studies and it's the reality. Top 10, Israel. How can you be happy living in Israel? It's a beautiful, magnificent, blessed place. People are happy here despite the attacks. There are places that are a lot worse than here. So this huge topic of security and safety, and by the way, in terms of location and safety, I wouldn't consider Ashkelon, Ashdod, even Kiryat Gat, any areas that were remotely close to Gaza, where rockets do come from, I didn't even consider those places. No, I don't want to live in a place where once a month or once in three months the alarm goes off and I have to go running for a shelter. That's not for me. There are people who don't care about that. They want the location for other valuable reasons, you know, meaningful reasons to them. But of course, I care about safety. I'm not going to put myself, and I'm not going to go live in Hebron. I'm not going to go into the West Bank, into a, 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 a well-known bad neighborhood and put myself in, in harm's way. I'll live somewhere that's relatively safe and I'll go about my day. And if something happens, with God's help, you have the, the energy, the strength, and the wherewithal, the mindfulness to be very decisive in, in, in how you react to it. So a lot of the stigma of safety and security whittles away when you actually come here and you start living your life. As do the rest of the stigmas. Right. If you care about security so much, then maybe you belong in a career that revolves around security. Maybe join the military or police, or be a security guard in a yeshuv, a moshav, a town, a city. There's so much you could do in security, in terms of security in Israel, because Israel is all, all about security and innovation within the security industry. So if you care about it, yes, there's so much you could do. But as a regular citizen, oh, you don't have to worry about it. Learn how to defend yourself. Learn about awareness. Educate yourself about transitional spaces and attacks, how to react. That's all you could do. The rest, you, 
You know, that's your hishtadlut. The rest you rely on Hashem. God will keep us safe. As with every part of the process, from the planning to the moving to the thought process of talking about it, you're always going to be met with these stigmas. New ones will pop up. Ones that might even surprise you. There's a way to tackle, I guess you could say, tackle each one of them. Don't be afraid of them. Look at them head on. See what they are. Realize that there's a way around all of them. Right. As you go through those stages of planning and organizing and then coming, they slowly start to fade away one by one. There's a lot more aspects to safety and security. You know, I don't want to make away any part of it. I think it's almost like a discussion of its own. There's an aspect of safety and security where you could argue that you're relatively more safe here. So many more people carry. We know that anytime a terrorist pulls out a, a, a firearm here and starts shooting, that they're killed within minutes. It's not like it is in the States where, you know, they'll hold down a facility for three hours. There's no hostage situation. Somebody pulls out a gun. There's usually somebody two houses down that pulls out their gun and shoots them. You know, very decisive here. Counterterrorism here also. They foil plots usually before they even carry it out. Security is, is a very big priority in Israel. So you could argue that you're almost more safe here, right? You can't go into a mall without being checked. And they have no problem racially profiling you here, right? You go into a mall, you have dark skin, middle age. They're going to check your stuff. They're going to harass you. Now, you may disagree with all of that. But the fact is, there's more safety and security here. I always wondered in America, you know, you walk into a huge mall. What stops anyone from walking into Palisades Mall with an AK, with a, you know, a semi-auto? Nothing is actually stopping them. Right. Coming with a semi-auto AR. Pop, 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 pop. Who's going to stop you? The, the, the mall security? The two Clarkstown cops that are standing there? In Israel, you don't have that. Every building has 20 military. Even though the military walk around with their magazines, their clips, not engaged, not in their rifles... They do have live ammunition in them, and it takes them about, you know, three seconds to pull it out and clip it in, and boom. In a certain sense, wherever you are, you're surrounded by the military of the country. You're surrounded by protection. Right. So, Constantly. you know, that that's from a certain perspective. Now, that doesn't mean that if you're alone in a car driving through a bad neighborhood, you won't get attacked. You know, you have to be wise about the decisions you make, of course. I just want to chime in. Speaking earlier about my stigma of how unsafe it is and how I learned to push that away and realize that, like, it's not unsafe here. Even just now, I mean, I'm still on my process. Hearing you describe that is changing my opinion to actually feeling safe here. Knowledge is everything. Opening your mind and listening, learning realizing that you are actually surrounded by trained military, by people that are there to protect you. I feel safe now. Whereas years ago, I thought Israel is an unsafe place. I wouldn't go there. To a year ago and maybe even a few months ago, feeling like it's not an unsafe place. It's it's fine. Like there's, there's no hardship in actually being there and you don't think about it on a daily. Now I'm going to be almost hyper aware of all the security around me. Yeah, well, I'm glad I was able to bring that to your attention so that you feel even better about it because it's a matter of perspective. In America, it's very common, especially if you're a liberal, to think in the notion of when you see guns, guns are bad tools from their perspective. So when you see a lot of guns, you right away think in the, 
in terms of the negative. You know, it's not safe because guns kill people. Of course, conservatives look at it more like people, people kill people. Kill pe- right, people kill people. And the only thing that stops a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. So we look at it from exactly the... It's, it's literally looking at a cup half full or half empty. So you could look at all the soldiers and all the security in and around Jerusalem and all the cities and wherever you go as a scary, unsafe thing. Or you could look at it like you literally have a platoon of soldiers right next to you keeping you safe. If something were to go down, you don't need a weapon because you know they're going to pull out theirs and they're going to protect you. I'm not saying you know that is the, the way to look at it. It's just another perspective on the matter. From a certain perspective... A Jewish person is the safest in Israel because we care about our people. We want to keep us safe, us thriving. Nowhere else in the country are you going to have an emphasis on the Jewish people. And because we care about our survival, you know, in turn makes it one of the safest places that you could potentially live in our times. I think a lot more can be said about security and safety. It doesn't really matter so much. It's just one of those stigmas that fades away the overall day-to-day here feels safe feels secure and in terms of personal security and stuff like that there's a ton of extra measures that you could take if you if you really are concerned about it another very big stigma is comfort so let me just ask you when thinking about israel in terms of comfort you know what popped into your mind i'm I'm trying to think you know what did i think two years ago what did i think four five seven years ago what was the stigma not what i know now so that's why I'm wondering, you know, what popped, what pops into your mind a year ago or two years ago when we're talking about Israel and we're thinking, you know, will it be comfortable? So the first thing that I had thought when I thought about comfort and Israel was dirty, unkempt, that living in American standards is so clean, or at least how I grew up and how I like it, places that I've gone to, my friends' houses, my relatives' houses clean and lavish or very lush homey and you think of Israel I had thought of desert stone tile floors it just it seemed like it would be a cold place to go that is how I thought about it I thought Israel living in Israel would be cold I, I didn't think I would physically be comfortable in a place there cold isn't not warm not as not, in not temperature, temperature. Right. Meaning, inviting, right. welcoming. Not homey. Yes. The thing is, I never personally bought into the comfort stigma, although it's such a common one, because I visited Israel a lot. I did notice, yes, your average car here is a crappy little car. So in terms of, I guess you could say travel, comfort is a little lower. But there were other aspects that I valued so much that I thought were actually a step up. So I never bought into the the stigma of less comfort. Matter of fact, as I got older and visited more and understood the quality of life here more, I found it to be more comfortable. And the reason for that is because, very simply, the way they build here, the things they have here, to me, are more contemporary. And I like modern and clean. Stone, tiles, hard materials, clean, edgy, straight materials is appealing to me. To me, I was drawn to more rustic, I guess you could say, but mixed with woods, like a hardwood floor. I love hardwood floors. Carpeted bedrooms, 
something that I love, that I've always had, that I was used to. And anytime I've ever been to Israel, that's not what you get. You don't get wood floors. Wood isn't as in abundance as it is in the United States. No, no trees. There aren't many. There's beautiful palm trees and olive trees and all these great fruit trees and other kinds, but they don't build with wood like you do in the United States. And to me, wood doesn't get hot, doesn't get cold. When you walk on the floor, you don't feel that difference in temperature. So in terms of the physical comforts and luxuries of my standards that I was used to in an American home, I had anticipated and had a stigma that Israel's not going to be physically comfortable. Interesting. I never loved wood. Like I said, I'm very into contemporary modern. And so that was my impression. But I do understand that there are certain basic level comforts that are different. Having to warm up a hot water heater before you use hot water is a basic level comfort that the average citizen here is deprived of. Whereas an American citizen has, we just flip on and go. Now, there's a reason why they do it that way here. They're very, very water conscious. The land is located in a geographical spot that is not necessarily in abundance with rain. So they have to make more conscious, more wise decisions about how we use water in general, but also how we use electricity, how we waste electricity and stuff like that. In general, Israel is very environmental friendly or at least they try to be so it's similar to some of the other stigmas where you have to kind of warm up and learn to appreciate a different culture a different perspective on overall life now should you be blessed with a lot of money and wealth you could build a custom house you could have an instant hot water you could have an instant hot water tank you could have the comforts those little comforts you could have a nice car here down south in demona which is where we're staying right now, I see some Audis, some Beamers. So evidently there are people who could afford that, even with all the import taxes on, on vehicles. So it's not like it doesn't exist. It's just a matter of, can you afford it? So no, the average person here is not leasing a fancy four or $500 car. In a certain sense, they live more in their means with regards to stuff like that. You could either afford your vehicle or you take public, but higher level comforts, in terms of apartment material, like I said, I personally like hard and contemporary style materials, so I find it fascinating. To me, a modern home on the sand is a lot more beautiful than a sheetrock home back home, back in the States. Now being here and living in an apartment that there is sand when I go outside and there is tile on the floor, not wood, I have come to know what it's like to live in the quote comforts of an Israeli home and now spending three weeks living in an apartment that doesn't have wood floors that does have tile floors and when I go outside it's not grass there is stone and sand the fear that I had that I wouldn't like it that's really all it was it was a fear of an unknown I had the stigma that's not gonna be comfortable I'm not gonna like it it's going to be cold, but now I'm living it, and that doesn't actually exist. It's withering away. The more time I'm here, and I'm embracing the culture, the comforts of Israeli living, these fears are becoming less relevant. Is the floor a little bit colder? Yes. 
So I got a pair of slippers. I put them on. I don't always wear slippers at home, but I adjusted to it. I made it work for me. Right. That's part of, I guess what you say is, is adjusting. Um, it's, it's learning a new perspective and then maybe finding some, some beauty in it. Thankfully for this particular one, I didn't have an issue with it. As far as sand goes, never thought too deeply into it. I suppose I liked big open green fields. Now that we're down south, we're finding a new love for the desert and the sand. There's just something so stark, clean, and beautiful about it. But it all ties together. You know, you may think that all of these stigmas, these stuff are small things, right? But believe it or not, people base their entire decision to move or not to move on these seemingly benign things. You know, and we're not talking about theology here. Closeness with, with your soul, with Hashem, with your people. We're talking about money, career, culture, comfort, security, seemingly benign things. But these are very, very important things, especially for Americans who are accustomed to a certain life, a certain comfort. So I'd just like to say that I think you can live a very comfortable life here. Maybe even more comfortable than the U.S. in a certain sense. Some of it depends on money. Some of it doesn't. Crazy enough, you could do more in certain areas with less money here. Don't get me started on prices of apartments in Rockland and in New York and the city. Let's not even go there. I mean... It's laughable. What is there... What is there to compare? We were in a one-bedroom slash studio for $1,200, $1,300 in Rockland. For $1,200 down south in Israel, you could get a three- or four-bedroom brand-new apartment, granite tops, shiny tile floors, two bathrooms. So there are aspects where money gets you much further here, and then there are aspects where it doesn't. So it's a matter of making a little list, finding what, what has value to you, what has more meaning to you. Overall, I think you could create... A more beautiful and meaningful life here but not if you're stuck solely on comfort if that's your biggest pet peeve and you can't wrap your head around the notion of sleeping on a different brand mattress right the little things that i can't even fathom because i'm not such a stickler for these types of things but there are people who have real preferences when it comes to tiny things if you can't budge an inch then you can't move but if you can budge an inch and find a new love in a new way, then you're on to something. Like with the whole process, when it comes to comfort, there are things that are more comfortable here, there are things that are less. And it's all part of just learning a new country, a new life. There's one more stigma that we're going to discuss before we end this for today. And tomorrow we can continue where we left off earlier with the planning, the organization, and all that stuff. Because there's so much, this is going to be a really long one, so we're going to stop after we discuss this final stigma. And that's about location. So the stigma is born out of two very simple things. A, you either visit Israel and your perspective of Israel revolves around the locations that you visited. And where do you usually visit as a tourist? Jerusalem, Tel Aviv. You may go up north, maybe pass, you know, Herzliya, uh, Haifa, and go all the way up to Tzfat, you know, all, all the big cities. And then going down south, you'll go to the Dead Sea, you'll go to Eilat. And your perspective about Israel is essentially revolves around those locations. And when you think about making Aliyah, you probably just think about the biggest places, Tel Aviv, Jerusalem, you know, maybe areas around Jerusalem, Beit Shemesh, Beitar, Modin, so on. Option B is that you don't know much about Israel because you didn't visit much, but 
it's what you see in the news, what you see on social media, what you see people talking about. But there's a central part missing here, and that is that people don't talk about most of the country. I could just look at myself, for example. I've been around Israel, and even I, when thinking of moving and making Aliyah, were thinking in terms of Jerusalem, in and around Jerusalem, maybe Modin. I didn't really allow myself to think too much outside of that box. And I think that's what shapes a large part of resistance when people think of moving because then you go online and you're trying to determine how much an apartment in Jerusalem will cost you and guess what Jerusalem is like New York City apartments are expensive it's a populated very busy a lot going on city it's prime real estate so this is a huge and very bearing stigma that has to be completely reimagined if you're considering Israel. I would venture to say that the first step is to figure out if you're even a city person. Which we know that both of us are not. And even though we're not, we still consider going to the city for other reasons. For example, what we discussed was that... Possibly being in a more populated area would be better for integration. Right. We told ourselves this. You know, we're going to lose friends and family. Let's go to a little bit of a busy place so there's some bars and, and some nightlife and stuff going on so that we don't get utterly depressed and roll, roll up inside of a cave and die. So even though we're not city people, we told ourselves, let's move to a city initially while we get used to the land, while we integrate, while we get comfortable, and then we'll move. And then I guess the more we started speaking to Nefesh Benefesh, and looking around and doing more research, we also started really questioning that, you know, if we really don't like cities, how much do we really need a nightlife, a distraction, a entertainment to help cushion the reality of losing friends and the life that you knew? And the more we thought about it, the more clear it became that we don't need it so much. It does not have the value that we had initially thought it had. We also learned about incentives going up north or going down south. Nefesh Benefesh has you know, better incentives in those areas. You know, they want more people moving to different areas. Israel is not about Jerusalem. The whole country doesn't revolve around that one location. And then I went even further. I was researching because I'm in tech, looking into different technology parks in Israel, and I stumbled upon Beersheba, which is a nice-sized city more down south. And then we started seeing pricing, pricing comparisons for going down south versus being center, you know, which we were considering anywhere from Modin to Jerusalem. And the more we looked, the more we researched, the more we thought about it, the more clear the picture became. We should make our pilot trip down south. It's more affordable. We don't need this city. We want to really learn the land, see what it's all about. Now, in retrospect, since we're already here for a couple of weeks and we've visited many towns, we can say that it was the best move that we did. I, it's almost laughable. It's literally almost laughable to me that I consider Jerusalem because now when I go visit Jerusalem, I'm like, what is this? Well, we didn't know that when we were originally planning. And part of this has to do with taking the first steps and Hashem guiding you. We found this overly affordable apartment in some random what we thought was a random city named Demona, 20 minutes south of this town that we were considering Beersheba, the city and god led us hashem led us here to show us what it's like not being in a city we even spent shabbat in a city 
Be'er Sheva, it wasn't for us. Right. So being here in Dimona, we, we were going from town to town, spent Shabbat in Be'er Sheva by someone to see the community there. It helped reaffirm even Be'er Sheva, which is a real Israeli city, a lot less populated than Jerusalem, a lot cheaper. I was like, hell no. We love it in our slash town, town slash city. Um, and we never dreamt that we would even like Dimona. We only came here because of a cheap Airbnb. And it turns out from all the places that we looked at, it's one of it's one of our top picks. Imagine that. And in the beginning, we actually thought Demona was definitely not going to be for us. We're only here because of the apartment. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. We we stumble upon Demona because of a cheap apartment. As as Americans who never really spent significant time in Israel, especially in places outside of, you know, all the tourist spots, we're telling ourselves, we're, we're, we're talking as if we know, like, you know, we're not interested in Demona. And this is really with research. We're interested in XYZ. You take the first step, God shows you the way. We took the first step. And guess what? We're not interested in the city. We love it here. We're checking out other towns in this area that are not cities. So... The reason it's a stigma, this basically shows you how these stigmas work. You have all these calculations, all these thoughts. You think you have it figured out, and you don't. They all just fade away when reality and experience come to the table. All of a sudden, whoa, now we have a whole different perspective on location. We very quickly rid ourselves of the location stigma. Israel is a nice country with a ton of towns and communities. Making Aliyah doesn't necessarily revolve around Jerusalem, Tel Aviv. Those are the places that one thinks they're gonna be more comfortable in because they're more popular. A lot of Israelis may have heard of the town of Demona, but that's all it is. A name that they might know. They don't even realize that there's over 10,000 people in this town. It's a Whoa. fully functional town. <laughs> that just, that, that's, that's going even a step further. Even the Israelis, when they hear that you're down south, or we tell people we're in Demona, well, why Demona? Why Demona? It's a beautiful place. It's funny enough, though it's ironic, but even Israelis who are accustomed to city life, look at the people who live down south like they're outlandish. When in fact, that's not the case. Right, no, it, but it just comes to show how strong the stigma is. So that's why I'm going back and saying, wait a second, where do you belong initially? Are you a city person? I never like this. If you're a city person and you're considering Tel Aviv, go for it. But I complain when I go into New York City. I dislike the traffic. I hate how busy and loud it is. It's not, I like quiet and peace. So the thought that I would go to Jerusalem, because that's all I knew, is just based off of the stigma. All of that changes very quickly when you come with a different mindset, a different perspective. And we completely rid ourselves of the whole location stigma. Now we see a country that spans whatever it is, a couple hundred miles, with a ton of towns and communities. There's so many options to weigh. We've come to find that topography plays a large role in our choosing. The desert is very aesthetically pleasing. Love the beauty and the starkness of it. Whereas when we go up north jerusalem tell if we go further and further and you have the trees and the mountains and all that stuff we love the views it's beautiful but i believe i speak for both both of us when i say that you you don't feel as free and open there you almost feel trapped on top of a mountain that's how i feel yeah because a lot of the places here in israel have these little like efrat there's just a ton of them we were also in naive neve ilan same thing so many so many towns here beautiful are on hills right and then you also have some nice views 
but we, we don't like that. We like flat. We like desert. Now, not everybody likes desert, and I never even knew I liked desert. We came here on a hunch, and it turns out I'm in love with it now. So you take the first step, Hashem shows you the way. Go around the corner, you'll see the next, next intersection. It's just utterly fascinating what you think you like. I didn't think I had it all figured out. I knew nothing about the geography of Israel for the most part. I understood the very basics. Being here, spending time here, seeing the locations, going from town to town, learning about communities, learning about the different people, the different types, the different places, all the stigma disappears. All of a sudden you see this beautiful country with so many options, but this would never be possible if A, we made an aliyah without a very long and drawn out pilot trip. And without the knowledge that we're gaining on this pilot trip. And without the open-mindedness to just go south and check out random towns, right? Because what happens if I played out, I guess you could say, let's say my dream, I'm just going to move to Jerusalem and I would potentially be happy there, but I would never even know of this beauty. That's how crazy it is. So location is a huge stigma. Israel has so many beautiful places to offer. One of the best things you can do is rid yourself of the stigma, come to Israel, go to all of these places, relearn location from a different perspective. And I can't even say from an Israeli perspective, because like I said, if you're a city person, if you're an Israeli city person, you'll also look at the person that's down south or up north like, what the hell? But you have to ask yourself, are you a city person? If you're not a city person then the city might not be for you and then there's a ton of other options for you i think that pretty much sums up all the big stigmas that i had jotted down there's a bunch of other ones of course for every person they're different i think this ties up all the big ones unless you have anything to add regarding stigmas no i didn't have as many stigmas because it wasn't something that i had thought about for many years i didn't either have all of these stigmas these are just such well-known stigmas that I kind of made little notes about them so that when we discuss them, because, you know, like I said, I, I didn't really have so much the stigma about the culture, the money I did, money and career I did, culture not so much, comfort. That was me. Quasi. Security and safety, also quasi. So, But but these are very, very big ones. Yeah, these are, these are the big stigmas. And we basically went through a little bit of, of the history, what led up to this. All the stigmas, all these things that are going through your head. You know, we're, we're talking about it in one hour, in two hours here, but these are significant portions of, of this planning phase. You're thinking about Israel for one year, two years, five years, ten years, and all of these things are subconsciously going through your mind. But, you know, what I'm trying to bring across is that they all fade away. They're big things, they're big parts of it, but if you get educated and you take the steps, they fade away and they become literally nothing. This will wrap it up for today. Tomorrow we'll continue into the later stages. The planning, the organization, the benefits of making Aliyah through the program, and a ton of, a ton, just a, an absolute ton of other information. All right, welcome back. Welcome, welcome. Welcome, welcome back who? <laughs> no. <laughs> Are you supposed to welcome back? We're welcoming ourselves back. It's a new day. All right, so yesterday we really delved into the stigmas and all of that fun stuff. Today, I think we can move a little bit further down the timeline and get into the planning phase. Yes, let's do that. So we already talked about the importance of having a date, right? You have to make a date because it gives you something to look forward to. It helps get you started. Even if that date doesn't ultimately end up being your date, you need to have a date. First step of planning. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, just it's, without a date, it's, it's just words. 
put a date to it, even if it's in a year, two years, three years, five years, put a date, take action, work towards it. Because after you have the date, you can start planning. One of the biggest aspects of planning is organization. So right when we put a date to it, or an approximate date, this opened the door right away for us to start organizing stuff and planning stuff. Because if you know, if you know that you're moving, let's say in a year, then you know that at a certain point, you have to start consolidating stuff, selling stuff, getting rid of stuff, packing stuff, not renewing leases. Yes. Sorting out all your assets, basically everything like all the planning revolves around the notion of having a date. And once you have that date, you could start organizing and organization, I would say is one of the biggest parts of what make a successful move and also a, a easier move. I'm very organized by nature. I can't imagine doing a move like this without organization. It would feel chaotic. I would feel unease or internal chaos if things weren't organized. So having a date, knowing that we were thinking about moving six, 12 months out, whatever it was, I think, I think initially, actually, we had, we gave ourselves even more time. Because what, we, what type of organization are you referring to? Like paperwork, timeline only? All of it. You know, when do we have to start worrying about getting rid of a car? When do you have to start packing? Okay. What, what bills, what subscriptions can you end? What are you going to carry over? And then, of course, there's all the legal aspects of it, right? So if you plan on doing, if you plan on going through the organization, let's say Nefesh Benefesh, to make an official aliyah, which I highly recommend because of the benefits that you get from it, then you have to plan things because a lot of that paperwork a lot of the system to going through that takes time right and you may not get close to your goal date if you don't become organized and plan ahead speaking about the benefits of making an aliyah see it's interesting there's so many things that tie into each other so it's a little bit hard for me to organize this topic in general because in order to give over some of the titbits of insight that we're doing requires us to jump ahead but then i want to jump back to stay on course. So now we're talking about planning and organization. I want to jump away for a second to say that because I mentioned Aliyah and the benefits of Aliyah, this ties into the money aspect a little bit. So one of the big stigmas and fears is money related. So let's just say you acknowledge that you could get a decent job here. It still costs, it still costs some money to move. Yes. Packing things up, getting rid of things, doing all the legal paperwork, and so on and so forth. So you may have in your mind that, well, I'm going to need X amount of money to move. However, part of the education, part of what we went through in, in attending some of the Nefesh Benefesh seminars, yeah, they help you understand exactly what you do and don't need, what you will and won't pay for. So I think a lot of confusion or uncertainty is solved with that knowledge. And what we came to find is that in a certain, from a certain perspective, Nefesh Benefesh and the state of Israel does help you quite a bit, more so than you might imagine. Now, there's a list of benefits. You can find them on Nefesh Benefesh's website. But the crux of, of it, the big ones that really matter, are first, Salklita, which is a, an amount of money that you receive per individual or couple for, I believe, six months. From the government. From the government after you move and it's not a crazy amount i think for one individual it, it may range between 500 and a thousand dollars or for a couple it may be closer to the thousand dollar per month range however when taking into consideration the entire move 
your new expenses, your new life and a new career or a new job, a thousand dollars a month for six months is very significant. And it goes really far, especially here in Israel. That could pay your rent. Yeah. I, I think it really helps lighten the load of the initial move. You could almost say that rent is paid for for the first six months. You don't have to worry so much about that because you could, as we know, you can get an apartment that's well under a thousand dollars a month. So you could you could use your salkita for the first six months to cover your rent, our nono tax, and utilities completely for six months. Could yeah. you imagine? Could you imagine in the states the government you know says you know we're going to cover you for six months now? That well that's essentially what's happening when you move to Israel. You're clearly not paying for the ticket to go to Israel because that's one of the benefits. You're getting free tickets, so you don't have to buy tickets to move. You're getting a free taxi ride from the airport to your apartment so these itty bitty expenses along the way that usually add up are simply not there yes you need money to do some of the paperwork the apostles the actual application but practically living it's not so bad and keep in mind that the salklita is based on how many members of your family so if you're a family of four or five and you're thinking i'm not going to be able to get a place for under a thousand dollars a month you're also going to be getting more money from the government, so it will help you significantly more towards your rent or whatever you need it to. It doesn't have to go to rent. It can be used for groceries, used for anything. It's just money they give you, and you allocate it to where you need it most. Yeah, so it's it's proportionate to the size of the family, and depending on where you live, you could actually get a three, four bedroom for under $1,000. Insane in comparison to... I guess you see New York prices or city prices. So nefesh benefesh and the benefits that you get when you make an aliyah are significant, especially for for a poor person. I'm developing this thesis that Israel and and the entire aliyah process is designed for poor people. Where you might think you need you need money to move to Israel, it's it actually comes across as the other way around. A person who has little to no money could benefit the most from all the freebies from all the benefits um and and it almost makes sense to go through with it just from a monetary standpoint because you could really end up in a life that is more affordable and live within your means there are a lot more benefits obviously i'm not getting into all the itty bitty ones tax breaks tax cuts and free health care all kinds of different things that you don't find them to be as significant there's there's a lot of them the more you look into it the more you could glean out of the benefit of moving those are the big ones you know the big ones can be akin to five to ten to fifteen thousand dollars depending on how big your family is and if you're moving and you might be out of a job for a couple of weeks or a couple of months that's huge there's also a private grant that you could apply to it doesn't go through the government i think it goes through directly through nefesh benefesh although i might be wrong i'm not even sure but you could certainly speak to your nefesh benefesh advisor about it that's who i got the application from and i heard about it from a friend you know they don't go around advertising it but there is a grant that you could potentially get for financial aid essentially so if you say you know i don't have a lot of money you know and, and you'll fill out on the on the paper what your income is you know your whole financial situation and they'll basically decide if you are approved for any amount now correct me that grant is something that you can apply for when you're making aliyah from within israel or only if you're making aliyah from outside of israel in general all of this all of what we're talking about is i think more for the 
if you're on the in the outside of Israel. My impression that I got, and I've asked this question from the advisor, was that you know f- from the Israeli perspective, Israelis are very practical in a certain sense, as we're learning. You know, there's a lot of practicality in what they do. A lot of bottom line, common sense. They expect you to use your brains. And and with and with this, with making aliyah, they look at it like this: if you're, they want people making aliyah. Of course, we want all Jews united, our homeland, togetherness, unity. They're willing. The government pours money into it. Tens of thousands of people make aliyah every year. But if you're already in Israel somehow you had the means to get yourself to Israel. They look at it a little different. It's like you're no longer inter- uh, an interesting investment to them. You already made it here, so less of an incentive to get you here. Right. It's like, you know, what are we paying for? The person's already here. So oddly enough, even if you could get yourself here or if you are here, it may be worth it to go back just to do the legal paperwork to make the official aliyah. That's, that's what my understanding was. And I think that was the way in which we were guided. Correct. Regarding benefits on a pilot trip, you know, none of what I'm saying is official. Obviously, you're going to make an aliyah, you'll talk to your advisor, but I asked all these questions, and there's a lot of verbiage, a lot of marketing that goes into a lot of aspects of the aliyah process. For example, Nefesh Benefesh now has a Go North program, a Go South program, and, you know, they're boasting about how the benefits are better there. When you really look into it and, and drill down to the, to the, you know, to the guts of it, th- there's not much there, really. Core benefits that you get, you get across the board. There are some very slight benefits that may apply to some people going to these areas. But none of what I'm saying is official. You have to look in a lot of this stuff frequently changes. So if you're going in in six months, in a year, or three years, you have to be up to date with all the new stuff. Yeah, so it's time sensitive, the offers, and it's case by case in a lot of ways too. Yeah. With that being said, in terms of benefits for a pilot trip, so I think there used to be this incentive where they would they would pay for half your plane tickets if you went for a pilot trip. This is if you already have an active application for the Aliyah. However, I think they stopped that because I was on the the impression that it, it existed. We booked our tickets. We were you know we're in our pilot trip now. But when I asked them about it, they said no. So there are changing aspects. I don't really think they help too much when it comes to the pilot trip. You either have to do a serious pilot trip on your own accord, which there are ways to do it very affordably, especially if you avoid all the tourist, uh, you know, and attractions and locations and all this stuff. If you just live a plain life here, you get a dira for one month or whatever, it's very doable, very affordable. With public transportation, forget about it. I mean, it's cheap. Coming here, even with the price of a a ticket, if it's an affordable ticket, you know, Ukrainian Air, Turkish Airlines or whatnot, it's it's cheaper for you to be here for two months than it is to be in the States. But they're not going to help you too much with it. They don't either help you too much with shipping things. You may get tax cuts for three years regarding importing goods and maybe even a vehicle or whatnot. Appliances is a big thing that you get a tax break on. But they don't help you with the shipping costs. Correct. So yeah. you have to run those numbers. You know, we're thinking about importing just one pallet, maybe two. And that could cost between a thousand and two thousand dollars. Then we have to ask ourselves, what is on that pallet? Is it worth two thousand dollars? So you start to have to making hard calculations when it comes to moving stuff. I reckon that the simplest way for us, for either a single or a young couple, is almost to just get rid of everything. The travel, you know, we talked about the traveler's personality. You get rid of everything. Come with a backpack. Start from fresh. Sell your stuff. How much stuff were we able to sell on Facebook? We sold a lot of stuff and made a lot of money back. It, the money that we made selling furniture and things on Facebook 
basically paid for our stay while we're in Israel. True. I think we were a little surprised to see, but you know, Facebook Marketplace is booming. Start posting stuff. It doesn't move. Go lower on the price. Renew it every seven days, whatnot. And then, and then I found out just researching on my phone that there's Facebook Marketplace here in Israel, also right here in Demona. Looking at apartments, looking at furniture, you can refurnish your place cheaply. Right. So it's really fascinating. You know, you'd be surprised. You think you don't have any assets. The little odds and ends, the, the, the stuff I sold out of my apartment before we left is astonishing. A laundry basket. <laughs> One of the quickest things to go was a metal laundry basket. I don't want to get into it. I, I, I posted everything. I, I literally just walked around my, my place snapping pictures and, and so many things, you know, probably 95% of the stuff went. And the day we moved out, you know, there was three, four, five stuff left. No problem. Um, we kind of wanted to go with that mindset of minimalism, starting fresh. I don't need all this extra junk. Now, did we fill up a pallet with valuables that makes sense? Of course. So you have to make those calculations, though, because they don't really help you in terms of the fees for shipping. In general, though, the overall consensus at least as of now, of course, I'll update if, if I think something changed. But the overall consensus is that depending on if you're a single or a young couple, you could make the Aliyah. Salklita can cover your rent and Arnona, maybe even utilities for the first six months. That gives you a lot of leeway. You could take public, which means you're spending $100 a month in transportation. So what's left? Phone bill? You know, phone, phone is cheap here. Phone Th- and food. $30 a month cell phone service internet is cheap here 30 40 40 dollars a month for internet is, is ready for the best internet the only real expense that you incur is food and what else anything else i think it's you know the main expense if you don't have that transportation expense is food you know so food i think is more similar to the united states in terms of pricing so there's no break i don't really see that there's a break there so whatever you're spending at home, maybe $200 a month, 300 a month, depending if you're one person or two people, whatever it is, that's what you'll be spending here. Oh, what am I saying? Two, 300, um, seven, 800, you know, if you're a couple, seven, 800 or a thousand dollars a month. Yeah. I, I meant, um, I meant two, 300 a week. Um, so you'll need your, you know, if you're a couple, you'll need your thousand dollars to buy groceries a month. But, you know, if Salklita's covered and you need a thousand for groceries, two hundred for travel, odds and ends, internet, phone, another two, three hundred, so what do you have? Fifteen hundred, sixteen, seventeen hundred? It's a joke. It's very affordable. It's very attractive. The benefits are real. And if you're well educated about the benefits, it should help lighten the load and make the move and the timing more realistic now back to the planning and the organization i'm trying to think of some details that we went through in the past couple months maybe six eight four months whatever it was where we started thinking in terms of consolidation organization getting rid of things oh for example one of the things that just popped into my head you had already started weeks or months prior not to repurchase certain food you wanted to use up the food that was in our cabinet Part of the planning was getting rid of stuff that we don't need, um, getting rid of perishables, making smaller grocery shops because I don't need to go to Costco and buy a large amount of any item 
because I had known that we were looking forward to leaving in, let's say, two months. So when I go to the store, instead of buying a large thing of oil, maybe I bought a small thing of oil. Instead of re-getting another spice, maybe I don't need that spice and I can figure out other recipes to use with the spices that I have in my cabinets and use the ingredients that I had. Everything, as we came closer, even starting four months ago, when it was, when Hanukkah came, I had thought practically what kind of gifts we should get and it didn't make sense to buy anything that I didn't need to take to Israel with me it would just be something else when we got married we didn't register because the more items we had the more we had to figure out how to bring it to Israel so even four six months back every purchase that I made that was gonna be a big purchase didn't make sense to get this sometimes you buy things because you comfortable you know it's gonna be with you for a long time but Is that space on the palette worth that item? Do you really need that item in Israel? No. So start paring back months in advance. I think it was doing all of this that actually made the end, the move, moving out of the apartment, packing up our bags, and then packing that palette. I think it made it so much lighter, so much not just in physical space and just practically uh, mentally lighter. Because you know, I function better with organization. So by organizing all of these seemingly little things, it made everything so simple. It, it, it was a process of narrowing down. And, you know, we were talking about selling stuff on Facebook. I'm, I'm laughing now thinking we got rid of our couch. That The couch sold so quick. We, were, we went two weeks without a couch. We didn't expect that to go so fast. <laughs> And then, and then in that manner, other things were starting to leave our apartment. Oh, and then, so then we were sitting with outdoor chairs in our living room. And then I sold my big chunky desktop computer, as I mentioned in a previous episode, in exchange for a laptop. We just, it was a process of narrowing down. So when the day came that the, that I, I back in the U-Haul to put all the stuff that we need for the pallet and, and, and to move, you know, whatever stuff, there was no chaos. We knew exactly what's going where, what's coming with us, you know, which four bags are coming with us, what's going to go onto the pallet in the warehouse, what's being thrown away, so on and so forth. Also, don't underestimate donations. There was a lot of things that we went through that we didn't sell, but we donated. One man's trash is another man's treasure. Amen. I mean, Kupa Tezra, I probably dropped off nine boxes, about 10, yeah, easily bags, boxes, valuables and jewelry all kinds of stuff stuff worth hundreds thousands of dollars so that you know that felt good of course there's no reason to hold on to to what what are you holding on to typically the clothes that you wear on your back in a couple months span a half a season or a full season could fit into two suitcases for a male not for a female which is essentially what you're traveling with you, you know the truth is it doesn't really include like winter stuff because i did pack up into our palette some you know, coats and boots, boots and all kinds, you know, doesn't include any of that. But your your day-to-day that you wear in a season, you know, for a guy, I guess, 15, 20 t-shirts, 5, 10 pairs of pants and jeans, boom, that's a half a suitcase for me. No. All of my clothes went into to, you know, luggage that, that we took with us. So when you're in a home, time goes by, things start piling up, but you don't really need, you know, that's another conversation, minimalism, you learn to let go live on a little bit less and there's a certain beauty there Um, but even if you're not into minimalism just for the sake of the moving process just for that duration that year or two where you're planning to leave your house 
go to a new country, settle in, maybe for that period you could adapt, tap in to that energy of minimalism and roll with it until you're settled in and then you can kind of build back up. How much did we touch on our planning of location? I know we discussed a little bit about the stigma of location, thinking should we go over you know, our thought process when we're looking at north versus south versus center, or we, did we already kind of... We touched on it a little bit. We definitely spoke about some of the stigmas of where Americans feel like they're supposed to be, where you know you feel like you want to go to Jerusalem, that's where you should live in a city that that's popular where you have a lot of friends where you know a lot of people spoke about that but in terms of planning on where we were going to wind up i don't know that we were as calculated on that we were very open-minded we knew what jerusalem had to offer we knew what modin beit shemesh we knew what a lot of those popular areas had to offer we'd also spend some time up north so the south wasn't unknown to us so we came here thinking we may not hit it off. It doesn't matter. It's a pilot trip. If we don't like it down here, and he even said, maybe we'll spend a year down south and it's not for us if we get locked into an apartment, and then maybe we'll spend a year up north. Right, yeah, that reminds me. Um, it was that easygoing outlook, that approach that we took to it, and that's correct. You know, you're sparking my memory now. We didn't even have the negative set in our minds. Going south, going to the desert was a cool notion, stumbled upon through various means, looking into technology, again, stumbling into Beersheba, and we thought it might be a, a cool idea. It's cheaper. It's nice. We may even like the sand. Now we know we really like it. There's no telling if we'll end up here for the next five, ten years. But we even said before we left, what's the big deal? The chances of hitting the spot, the first place you show up, I felt was very slim. And I said numerous times, we're probably not going to hit the spot the first time. This was more along the lines of when we were thinking of just making Aliyah without the pilot trip. Correct. So part of the planning is plan that it's okay to relocate. But now that we have the pilot trip, it changes everything because we literally have now seven weeks to check out location, get a feel for location. So it changes everything. Now I reckon because of our pilot trip, it's going to be a little bit more of a sound decision. Although I will say that if you're planning a pilot trip and you think a one to two week pilot trip is going to cut it, that's a mistake. One to two weeks is vacation. It's not a pilot trip. A pilot trip means living. It's essentially what we're doing now. I, this is how I view it. I know that the typical pilot trip is, is literally like a small vacation. Eh, we're going to check out some areas. No. Well, practically most people can't take off seven weeks. I mean, I gave up both of my jobs. You, your job comes with you and travels with you wherever you are. So for many people listening, you're not going to be able to take off seven weeks. Try to take off as much time as possible and know on that trip that you're not coming to Israel to visit your family, to see your friends, to do all these things. When you come for your pilot trip, come check out real locations that you're considering and don't go out to eat every day. Don't be entertained by the people that you're comfortable with. Make the most of whatever weeks you're able to get. This seven week period that we're here, I'm not going to either of my brother's houses with my husband. We're not going. That's not the purpose of this trip. They would love to have us for Shabbos, but that's not why we're here right now. I'm not going and hanging out with my friends that I have here because it's not a vacation. I look at this pilot trip as living. Come to Israel, whatever weeks that you can, and try to live here as you would when you're here. Don't use that time as a vacation. Yeah, it's the practicality of the day-to-day -day here. 
that we're trying to experience and we are right we're going to get into some of that fun stuff um, but on, on the outset it's doing laundry it's going shopping it's jumping on the bus figuring out the bus system it's hailing a cab it's the practical day-to-day real life of being in israel that is the point of the trip on top of that to check out locations and in checking out locations we simply jump on a bus go to a location you walk through it. We spend hours walking through towns, and you wouldn't believe what you could learn by walking through a town. And just seeing the people that are on the streets, seeing the kids and the types of schools that there are, seeing the stores, the neighborhoods. In some neighborhoods, the sidewalks were a lot cleaner than others. There's a lot more trash in fields. You get a sense of the community so strongly and we've actually changed our mind about going to certain places for Shabbat based on being in the town. You're almost going to learn more being there on a weekday and walking around and seeing the day-to-day life than you are going to someone and being in their house for Shabbat. It's important to go to a shul and, and see you know, what type of people you're going to be mingling with if you're part of that specific community. But in terms of the town and the city, yeah, go during the day. Walk around, look, see, observe. Yeah, I think the conundrum is that if you're in Israel for a pilot trip and you want to go check out a town for Shabbat, so meaning you're spending one of the Shabbos by someone to learn about the community or the shul or the area, you don't get the perspective and the feel of the day-to-day, the work, the city. And if you come during the week, you don't get a sense of Shabbos. I think what we're experiencing essentially is that if you first go during the week, walk through the town hours, walk miles, we walk through streets, as you said, you see the little kids playing, you see the store owners, you see how they greet you, you see the topography. Is it flat? Is it mountainous? Is it dirty? You know, what kind of people? And you talk to them, you interact, stop at a restaurant, eat a shawarma, a falafel, you, you, you get a, you, you're literally living it because you're not in a rush. You're just feeling it out. As opposed to when you go for Shabbos, you get a different feeling, but the stores are all closed. So you're not seeing how the city functions on a regular day. So then, so what I'm saying is if you like it during the week, then you're like, okay, you know what? I want to check it out on Shabbos, but you might come to find like we have in some places, we're not even interested in the place anymore. I don't like what it looks like during the week there for whatever reason. So I don't even want to check out a Shabbos because if there's something that stands out so strongly that you don't like, there's no point in entertaining it. And there's 50 other towns to go check out. Originally, when we were planning this pilot trip, when we realized that we were going to have a pilot trip, we had planned and reached out to Nefesh Benefesh to get contacts in very specific neighborhoods that we thought were going to be perfect for us. Some of them like more busy cities, but you have to be flexible. What we originally planned, the schedule that we were making has changed. And we have now heard of towns that we didn't even consider before, which now are on the top of our list. Right. Through being here, interacting with people, A huge part of the pilot trip is interacting with people, making those relationships, asking those questions, getting into those uncomfortable situations. And through those, you get referrals, you get ideas, you get opinions, half of which, three quarters of which you're just going to brush aside. But the other quarter that does pertain to you is going to be like a guiding light. You know, Hashem interacts with us through nature, through people, through our environment, essentially. And this is how it unfolds. Going back to some of the funny quirks, some of the practicality, some of the day-to-day, 
I'm reminded of two things. First of all, you know, getting on a bus. Now we're using the Move It app, and the app tells us take bus 49 is going to take us to there, and then that bus is going to take us to, you know, we'll get on a different bus. So in the beginning, you know, you're innocent. You get on the bus. I'm, I ask the driver, you know, are you going here? I'm showing him on the map. He's getting frustrated. We end up getting off the bus. He's like, no, I'm not going there. Now, it, it was it was a funny interaction because we knew the bus is going there, and that bus does go to where the app says it's going. It's just that the interaction, the lack of Hebrew, trying to understand each other got a little like, uh, so, but instead of, you know, let, letting a situation like that frustrate us, which potentially could frustrate a person because now we miss the bus. When's the next bus coming? Blah, blah, blah. That's literally the type of experience day to day that you want to have in a pilot trip to learn more about the country. That also goes back to what we were saying about, you know, the integration process. We have to laugh things off, take things easy, know those things are going to happen, and then you learn from it. Now I know the app tells me get on that bus. I'm getting on the bus. I'm not, I'm not even talking to the driver. After I need no conversation. And guess what? Never had an issue again. The app was never wrong. You get on. It takes you to where you need to go. Now we use the bus on a daily basis. In city bus, locally, go to Beersheba, Jerusalem, Tel Aviv, anywhere. And we've learned from taking the busing system at different times to go to the same location. There's different ways to get there. We know which buses come to the bus stop now, right at the corner of our street, and which side of the street is going to take us to what areas. You gain this comfort and this knowledge by trying it. It's not going to go plan for it not to go smoothly in the beginning. These expectations, you have to, we spoke about it last time, you have to be okay and embrace that not everything is going to go right. Plan for mistakes. Plan for extra time if you've never taken the bus. Get to your location early. So if you do miss the bus or you get on the wrong bus, it doesn't matter. You're not stressed. You're not anxious. You don't feel like, oh, I can't do this. Israel isn't for me. No, a little mistake happened. It doesn't define what living in Israel is. You need to have that traveler's mentality that we keep talking about. Yeah, and... From my perspective, I, I shared this with you the other day. Oddly enough, I love I love getting places quick. I love driving or perhaps being driven. But I, I'm, I'm from America. I know the luxury of getting into a car and getting somewhere right when you want to, that second, least traffic possible, avoid certain roads. I get all of that. However, I felt like it was a certain luxury being here and using public, especially with how convenient public is, even though it's taking us longer to get certain places because the bus stops. So every stop adds 10, 20, 30. They're quick here, but it still adds some seconds every single stop. And things take long. A three-hour bus ride could be a two-hour car ride. So you're stacking an hour on top of a whatever ride. And typically, that's something that would annoy me. Like, I would never do that. I need a car. In staying true to our desire to learn the land, even if we could afford a car soon, right now during a pilot trip, I think it's great that we're not, that we don't have a car. I could go rent a car. We're purposely not using a car because in staying true to that notion of learning the land, learning how to get around, learning how most people live here, you could only have those experiences if you immerse yourself into it. Now on top of that, I'm actually enjoying public transportation. Look, there's a lot going on with pilot trip, I'm building a business, we're busy with our day-to-day. -day. If I have to drive to Jerusalem, if I have to drive to Jerusalem or Tel Aviv and focus on the road for two hours each way, that's four hours of hard focus. You know, just like a, sh just like a business owner who is chauffeured around, that's what I feel the bus is doing for us now. 
it gives me an opportunity to relax and not focus on where we are, when to make the next turn. So I'm actually enjoying, even though it's taking a little longer, I'm enjoying blazing out during those times of travel because it's it's my time to space out and not focus. So it's it's a weird luxury. Well, I've seen that you both take that time to relax and space out, but I've also seen you actively working on your phone during those times. It allows for you to have more freedom to message clients, to do what you need. Another thing that we've benefited greatly from in terms of taking the busing is it's taken us through towns or past towns that we didn't know. Now, if you were driving from point A to point B, we would miss some of those towns. You wouldn't get a feel, oh, what is this town? This looks cool. See the people getting on, see the people getting off, past the main street. Oh, now let's purposefully go to this town and check it out. It's so beneficial on a pilot trip. The pilot trip is amazing. It's really what's making all of it so viable and powerful in a much more meaningful way than our original plan. And this is all Hashem's doing. All Hashem's doing. He guided us to this. We planned. What's the phrase? Man plans, God laughs. As as we've said, uh, you know, we took the first step and then he shows you the next one. And you take the next one and then he shows you the next one. And it's, that's what we've been experiencing. Thank you, Hashem. So now let me back up a second and take essentially our listeners through the final phase of us getting here, right? So we talked about planning. We were organizing. We organized everything down to a T. I mean, the last day we were leaving our apartment, I sold my car. I had taken insurance off my car weeks prior already. I had posted it on Facebook. No buyers back and forth. People, you know, they just waste your time. The last day of, of the apartment, somebody reaches out. That same day they come look at it, boom, they sell it. They come into a house that's stripped to the bones, stripped, you know, there's nothing there. And, 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 and they see us, we're literally walking out the door a couple hours later and, and we're signing off a title. Your car, we cancel insurance. And my car, we had originally planned to hold on to it because we knew we were coming back to the States and we wanted a car. And it was just three or four days before we were leaving to get on an airplane that it really dawned on us, does it make sense to make the monthly payment on the car two months that we're not going to be here and to pay the insurance for the two months that we're not going to be here just so that we have the car for the five weeks when we're going to be back no it, it didn't make sense so within a matter of days we call the insurance company we realize that we're going to cancel the insurance and then we thought maybe we would just leave it in the driveway of my parents house uninsured saving money we decided to pay it off so we're not making those payments. We didn't have to worry about that monthly. And then my car is free to do whatever we wanted with. And then we figured, let's try to sell it. And just by God's hand, your mother reaches out and tells us that she's looking to sell one of her cars. And we know she likes my car. Right. So, so then she considers purchasing your car. And then the handover becomes smooth. We also, you know, with moving the items... A day before I get the U-Haul, put the pallet stuff in. You know, of course we spent a week packing slowly, methodically. This, you know, all the stuff that wasn't dropped off at Kupat Cezra, we pack into the truck, take it to, you know, my friend's warehouse, wrap up a pallet. So the day that we're leaving, the house is empty. The couple things that are that are left in the house, we arrange with the landlord to keep there. Two bed frames. Kitchen, dining room table. A dining room table and some other odds and ends. And we, we essentially walk out there with our backpacks and bags with with ease. We just 
walk out. It, it was like, it was almost as simple and as organized as you would feel if you were going on a one week vacation. And here we had packed everything out of our house, given things away, consolidated everything. And we had essentially packed up to move to a different country. We were giving up the apartment and the ease at which we were able to transition walk out of that place was like going on on a weekend you know it's like going to somebody for shabbos you know, you're going to spend the shabbat by someone you pack up a bag you leave you come back you know you know you don't even think about it twice that is essentially what it looked like when we left our place um and this is because proper organization proper planning understanding what your assets are how they need to be split up what needs to be sold what you're going to keep when to get rid of each thing and when to shut off certain subscriptions yeah proper planning absolutely you had mentioned that we had slowly started to pack up our apartment. Now, earlier we said that I had stopped buying certain items at the grocery store mm -hmm. because I wanted to get through all the things that I had and use the ingredients that I had, which made the last leg very easy. But how many weeks beforehand did we start packing our first box? It was a nice couple of weeks. A nice couple of weeks beforehand. Things we know we need, we don't need it right now our hiking gear we were trying to clean out some of the closets we knew we needed our hiking gear and certain things we started going through it packing up stuff that we don't need right now we know is coming with us on a pallet and putting these definites aside and we had these closed boxes in the hallway maybe you did six boxes one day then maybe we didn't do any boxes the next few days whenever we came across something in our life and our daily living ah we need that i don't need this i haven't used this foot bath in forever that's going to go to donate. You have to plan, make it easy for yourself, little by little. It becomes such a breeze. Yeah, and it has a lot to do with mindset because a lot of people would stress out having boxes in their house for a couple of weeks. So it's all about having that, you know, really, really shifting your mind to be okay with a different type of organization. This type of organization entails having boxes in your living room for a couple of weeks. This type of organization entails getting rid of a couch two weeks before you leave and now you're watching Netflix on an outdoor recliner chair. This type of organization has a different connotation to it, but it's shifting your mindset to appreciate it for what it is, for the bigger picture. It's I think that the entire move, the entire Aliyah process can can be dreadful or it can be blissful and it's up to you and your mindset and of course it can be accompanied with a ton of personal prayer you talk to Hashem every day help guide you help you organize help you see the next you know the next step you go with him you take the first step and it unfolds now we pack up we leave our place we stay by your mom for a couple of days because we had booked a ticket I think the, we were there for six days because the the apartment interestingly enough also the apartment lease ended exactly we were in the apartment for one year the apartment lease ends so we had six days between that and a and our plane and our plane rides so we come to your mom with two backpacks and two suitcases and then we just kind of hung out there until we until we flew out here now we found very affordable you know flying to israel is a topic but it's a simple topic seasons the price of tickets have a lot to do with seasons however most seasons you could get very affordable tickets if you a take a stop and b choose the right airline for example like turkish and ukrainian you could very often get tickets in the 700 dollars range now in terms of seasons our niece was getting married january 19th which back in the united states coincided with yeshiva break when all the jewish schools in the new york new jersey area 
have off of vacation. So traveling to Israel at that around that time is very, very popular. So we had consciously decided, let's go a week and a half beforehand and we were able to find cheaper flights because we didn't travel in the prime time. Yeah, so when we chose our flights initially, we looked at some of those dates and since it was months out or weeks out, there was no reason why we needed to be there the 8th versus the 7th or the 1st. You look at the tickets, you find those affordable tickets, and for $1,400, we bought both of our tickets to Israel round trip. And on the way back, the it's at, we're actually stopping in Ukraine. We're going to check out Oman for one or two days and then back to New York. And there was zero price difference in, in, in that stop. So $1,400, two round trip tickets to Israel, to Ukraine, to New York. And this wasn't even planned so far in advance. Just upwards of one full month in advance, we booked them. Because I remember going to my work two days after we booked it. I think we booked it on a Saturday night, these tickets. And that following Monday, I went to them and I said, in a month's time, I'm not coming back. I gave them one month notice. This We didn't even get this rate because we booked it seven months in advance. You know, you always think that if you wait till the last minute, you're not going to get a good price. You have to watch. You have to look. Typically, last minute, last minute, you don't. Five weeks out or six weeks out, that range is usually an okay range. We ended up, we got those tickets from Ukrainian Air, very cheap airline. I usually take Turkish Air to Ukraine or to Israel. They're usually the cheapest also in the six $700 range. I heard that Turkish is going up. However, if you look at kayak, you look at kayak, you, you, you keep an eye out, you put in your filters, you should be able to, in most seasons, get a, a round trip ticket to Israel for 700 range. So my point being, it's not so expensive. There's two ways to look at an Israel trip. It's so expensive or you're going to budget, you're going to be adult and mature about it, and you're not going to blow money where money doesn't need to be blown. So next thing you know, we are on an airplane flying to, I guess you could say, Ukraine, but ultimately Ben-Gurion. We had a stopover in Ukraine. Very, very powerful feeling. So many years of dreaming, so many hundreds or thousands of prayers, tens of thousands of thoughts of Israel, our homeland, the notion of being there, all of that swirling around my mind. It was just a pleasant flight. The feeling was, was strong, almost to the point of needing to contain yourself. When you dream about something for so many years, and you plan for something for so long, and then it finally becomes a reality, it could get a little overwhelming mentally. That's so cool to hear you say that. Mentally, and just you have to figure out how to stay contained, not freak out because of it, because it could almost scare you in a way. You know, the longer you agonize over something and don't do it, it could almost become scary. But I know that it's not scary. I've been to Israel a lot, but it's just that you know that now you're moving. Now, even though we called it a pilot trip. I mean, who are we joking? We don't have a place to live back in America. Our stuff that we really want is here with us. <laughs> we moved. We happen to be going back to America to visit. But in our minds, we're so comfortable here now. We love it so much. It's going well. Yeah, that's what I told Chad. We've adapted the land. When we got here, I said... You mean going back to the U.S. to visit? Because this was our move. Now we had to term it a pilot trip for mental and, and practical reasons. We are going back for some weeks to sort out some stuff. But I knew intrinsically this is the move. Coming here for this many weeks, not doing anything vacation style, living here. This is 
the early, early stages of that integration and that and that initial move. I'm going to learn the land. I'm going to fall in love with the land. And any trip back to the U.S. is essentially just a temporary trip. For me, it was different. For me, the pilot trip was going to figure it out because I haven't been praying to live to Israel, to move to Israel. This hasn't been years in the coming for me. This is relatively new, this idea of me being here. So knowing that I wasn't even forced, which is such a harsh word, but that I had a two-way ticket, I guess you could say, took a lot of that stress and relieved a lot of my nerves a bit. I'm coming here to try it, see what's difficult, how I'm going to work on it. So for me, in my mind, when I do come back to Israel, I am so ready. That's what I was telling myself. Now, after being here, I'm laughing at myself. What was I so nervous about? Why do I need a two-way ticket? I don't want a two-way ticket anymore. Yes. I don't even want it. For you, it was, a, it was a spontaneous move almost. Almost. You know, we spoke about it for a while, but it, I mean, but it, it, come, but it came quick. I don't, know what's, I don't know what's more overwhelming. Thinking about it for 10 years, wanting it, desiring it, praying for it, versus it just kind of popping up and doing it. I don't know, but it's, it could be overwhelming in any case, as you've just described. But we knew we were moving. Even though it's technically a pilot trip, it's the move. Meaning when we officially move with all the legalities, we're not going to be overcome with any kind of shock or difficulties because we will have already gone through that process, which is what we're going through now. In that sense, this is the move. So all of these things are going through my mind, and it's a very powerful feeling, almost to the point, like I said, you have to learn how to contain it. It's like, what do you do? You, you jump for joy, you, you freak out, it can almost be overwhelming, like what am I getting myself into? I'm so accustomed to where I lived my entire life, to American life, culture and all that stuff, you know, what do I do? Thank God I was overcome with calmness and peace. I had my wits about me and you know I don't I don't feel like I control that I feel like Hashem could you know make one nervous or make one calm and he blessed us with calmness so we have a night flight with the stopover it's and the time change is practically a full day flight we arrive in Tel Aviv 10 11 p.m. by the time we get out it's 12 a.m. and we had known this so we were planning like what's the best way to get to where we need to get to. Now, when you make an official aliyah, Nefesh B'Nefesh gives you transportation from the airport to where you need to go. For us, that was a two and a half hour journey. Yeah, and the and I suppose the most affordable or practical way to get there that late would be to rent a vehicle, and that's what we did. We decided to rent for one day. It was a Thursday, and we would return the vehicle Friday morning in Beersheba. So we have Hertz right there in Tel Aviv. So we pick up our car, it's pouring rain, we start heading toward Demona. Mind you, the car fit exactly us and our four bags of luggage. Nothing else could have fit in. Yeah, it was a tiny little two-stoose of a car, <laughs> little lawnmower, little golf cart. It was so cute, you know, but you're so happy. None of these things matter. It was perfect. We got the car, sit in, put our stuff in, we're driving. It doesn't rain and pour often in Israel, but the night we got there, it was really coming down. Driving all the way down south and heavy, heavy rain. So it took a while. We arrived to Demona at about 2 to 2.30 a.m. Now, the apartment that we had arranged that we spoke about yesterday was an Airbnb apartment. It was the first time the owner of this apartment was renting out. On top of that, we're talking about Israeli standards here. So this individual obviously doesn't 
know what kind of standards people expect on Airbnb because we've used Airbnb a lot. You expect a certain standard, toiletries, clean, fresh towels, XYZ. Now this individual is just thinking, oh, you know, I have a dira, let me rent it out on Airbnb because I, I might make more money that way, but not realizing that people have expectations on Airbnb. It's different when you're renting out an Israeli apartment on Yachtstein or on Facebook Marketplace locally, and people here are used to these types of apartments. And they're planning to move into it and bring a lot of their stuff. There's a big difference between that and an Airbnb, where people are essentially vacationing in fully furnished apartments. So we already discussed, you know, we had a, we got a great price on it. So in, anyway, we show up, we open the door, and we see essentially a very spacious apartment that has a lot of very gross things in it. Old, leftover stuff from the previous people who had lived here. Stuff that nobody wanted to take. And so, you know, on, on the one hand, we're so happy to be here. We're really happy the size of the apartment. And on the other hand, there's all this like, and we're not picky, it's just, it was gross. Straight up, it was just gross. Nasty green rug on the floor. Old and torn up towels. That was his version of having towels. The shower curtain is all yellow on the bottom from, you know, old, old water stains. Everything just felt, ugh, this is what we came to. We didn't dwell on that too much at all. We actually started making some changes, went through all the cabinets, saw what we had brought our own bedding. That was very smart. Sorry to cut you off, but one of the things that's important is to bring things that will make you feel comfortable. The stigmatism of you're not going to be comfortable, what it's going to be like, you can overcome that by bringing things that you know you'll need. I know that we like certain sheets, materials, certain types of blankets, certain kinds of pillows. So we had messaged the Airbnb guy beforehand, wanted to know what size the bed was. Turned out it was the exact size of the sheets that we had. So even though we were only with two suitcases, I made it a priority to have sheets and a duvet cover and pillowcases and stuff like that. So when we got here and we saw the old, nasty, crummy looking stuff that was on the bed, I was like, okay, let's get rid of it. Let's start brand new let's put all of our clean soft things that we like on the bed and that worked out beautifully because coming into this apartment with all this gross stuff we have some of our, our home comforts with us so you know that felt nice and then slowly you we moved the some furniture. furniture around situated things cleaned up a little bit and you know found our yeshubadas some peace of mind some semblance of okayness within it we turn on the dude you know the dude it's like the, the hot, hot water, water heater yeah you have to heat up the water which anyone who's been to israel knows this because we just traveled for a day we want to take a shower an hour later when you know the dude is supposed to be hot we want to take a shower and two issues one is that it's not hot and two is that there's zero pressure and when i say zero like the water was like trickling out not even enough to, I, you were having trouble getting the, the soap out of your hair. It had no pressure. It was literally like a dripping, there was liquid coming out. There was water coming out. It was just, had no pressure. How else can I say it? Not even no pressure to American standards. No pressure on any standard. Right. Uh, and that's because the shower head was broken. So, you know, mind you, you're coming to Israel. This is, welcome to your first experience, right? <laughs> you think to yourself, this is where I'm going to live here like this you take a deep breath and you you don't let it get to you you're like okay truth of the matter is the towels here were nasty 
So not being able to shower once we got here wasn't even all that bad because the next day we went to the store and bought a whole bunch of stuff, including brand new towels that were soft and fluffy. Yeah, seeing the towels, I was grossed out to take a shower just because of the towels, let alone there was no hot water. So right away, you know, the next morning we're messaging the, the, the Airbnb guy, hot water's not working, no pressure, oh, so sorry, I'm just on the plumber. This went on for a day or two, the plumber comes, first he checks a couple things. And we get a little bit of warmer water, so we're able to take a shower, but the pressure wasn't right and it still wasn't hot enough. That's when I couldn't get the shampoo out of my hair. Right. Called him again. I told the guy, listen, this is, this is no bueno. It ain't good. The plumber comes again. And this time, you know, he's really going to put his mind to it. You know, this time he's going to solve it. And indeed, he had to change the heater in the hot water tank. He opened up the hot water tank. It was full of either sand or rust or whatever it was, a gunk. He made a horrible mess in the laundry room. And the kitchen. All the way through the living room, dining room area. Down the hallway to where the bathroom is. <laughs> this is day three in our, you know, Israel experience in our Israel apartment. I mean, we didn't even have a broom for quite some time. I just wanted to sweep up some of the dust on the floor. We didn't even have a broom here. So we knew that a serious shopping is in order. We have to buy the basics. Garbage bags, brooms, things, cleaning supplies. Things that you expect an Airbnb to have. Right. So that, you know, a, a little mishap like that could throw you off by a couple hundred dollars easily. And it does. You know, you have your cheshbonot, all those calculations that you're going to buy your food and you're going to buy this. And now you have to spend $300 buying odds and ends. It changes the dynamic. But we did. And we were slowly getting more and more comfortable. The plumber changed the shower head. All of a sudden, there's great pressure. Cleaned out the entire water heater, which I think was affecting it, you know, to heat up normally. And now, if you turn on the hot water tank and you wait an hour or plus, you do get pretty decent hot water. Not great, but pretty decent hot water. And slowly, with time, you know, you start comforting up to what it is and, and, and things start working out until... The next thing happens. Which was... The bed. Right. We're, we're laying in bed, and then it'll boom. It drops a couple inches, like it falls in. So the bed is on a crappy frame, and it couldn't handle, I guess, 200 pounds in one corner. Sounds crazy when I say that I that I weigh 200 pounds. I'm actually just over 200. Well, I was on the bed too. Any bed that is made for two people, you and I together weigh under 200, under 350 pounds. If a bed can't hold 350 pounds, it's not made for two people. Yeah. I was getting off the bed, put all my weight in one corner or something along those lines, and it fell in. Thankfully, this was in the morning, so we were done sleeping in it. Right, so so we were laying there at an angle for a little bit. And, you know, a lot of stuff here in Israel, you just have to solve, laugh it off. Instead of it becoming this big stress, this big make or break it, you have to improvise. The fact is, we did pay a low amount for the Airbnb. It's not a fancy apartment. It's not decked out. And things like this are going to happen. It also hasn't been lived in in a long time. So we go downstairs. And I realize that there's... A construction site about around the corner and they're doing these pavers which are certain size stone for the walkway I'm like ah those will be perfect so we grab a whole bunch of them carry them upstairs into our apartment pick up the bed and shove a whole bunch of stones underneath for support so now that corner is now strong and can hold our weight 
I think what happened I think a day or two later two days later at night the same exact thing another corner just gave right <laughs> and my head was all of a sudden lower than my feet so we moved around so that that didn't happen the next morning I went back to that construction site and we and took I enough took stones for three all three trips <laughs> three trips now every corner and edge of that bed is secure yeah with with the construction stones from outside i mean this is this is week two right so week one was showing up to not being able to take a shower disgusting towels and commodities lack of anything here utensils the uh, everything in the kitchen uh, can't even describe how nasty it was week two our bed is breaking. The light in the bathroom goes out, so there's no light in the bathroom. You know, the bulb just burns out. And no other light bulb in this apartment fits in there. Right. But there aren't even that many light bulbs. If you look at the ceiling, there's so many empty light bulbs all over the place. Every light bulb in this apartment has a different end. But you can't let these things get to you. You have to laugh them off. You can't get frustrated at them. If you turn the, the heater the fridge and the oven on at the same time the fuse pops you know these are things we're learning as we as we go along this journey week three this past week we're sitting calmly in our living room enjoying some family time and i stand up to get a snack from the kitchen and there's water all over the kitchen floor <laughs> i mean we're talking about water not like oh it's wet so i, I call nate over and what do we discover? A pool in the laundry room. There's literally inches, about two or so inches of water there. And we grab all the nasty, dirty towels and immediately start trying to soak up some of the water. So the laundry machine is leaking. Evidently that broke on its second or third run. Um, and it was trying to fill up, right? When you do a, a wash, you're trying to fill up. It's trying to fill up the water so it could do its cycle, but it was never filling up because there was a leak, so it was just pouring out. So there's two inches of water on the floor. I shut off the machine. We have all these nasty towels that were that came with the apartment, and this is perfect. You know how well, how are you going to start scooping up two inches of water in two rooms? Well, with all these towels. But this is, you know, this is this is a whole bunch of fun, but this is a lot of labor. Forty-five minutes of labor. That's all it was felt like an hour or so but well that was a main round yeah it was 45 minutes yeah one of the one of the people who live in the apartment underneath us comes running up knocking on our door he wants to know why it's raining in his apartment <laughs> um he, he he sees really quickly that we don't speak hebrew and and that there's towels all over the floor we both have our latex gloves on and we're squeezing wringing out. out the towels in the sink and in a bucket so you have the bucket, I'm in the sink, so we're essentially taking the towels, laying it down on the floor, letting it soak up, putting it nasty towels onto our granite kitchen top, wringing it out into the sink, and doing it again and again, 45 minutes well, to it, soak up all of that water. It took us about 20 minutes to realize where the leak was coming from in the washing machine because we got the water level low enough that we were able to see a constant stream of water coming out of the washing machine. So even as we're getting rid of all this water, there, even though we turned it off, there was more water still coming out. There was still right? water pouring because out. Because even though the machine was off, all the water from inside the washer was still leaking out. Soapy water. Um, 
that was a disaster, right? You reach out to Lang, oh, so sorry, blah, blah, blah. You know, the runaround, the plumber's going to have to come look at it. But meanwhile, we just had to work for an hour. And now I'm, and now we're stuck with all the wet, soapy clothing that are inside the washing machine. How do with we get a broken that? washer. How do, we, how do we get that out? There's still some water left. So we get the buckets, and you, Nate, you lean the washing machine forward, and we try to get some of that soapy water, Then you have to close it really quickly because the bucket right. filled up. Spill that out in the sink. Do this just so we can access the soaking wet clothing. Once we have done this many times over, we wring out the soaky wet, soaking wet clothing and put it into a bag. And I had had on the floor the laundry bag for the next loads. That soaked up the water because it was sitting right there on the floor next to the washing machine. Now we're stuck with like two and a half loads of wet, soapy clothing and all these soaking wet, nasty, dirty towels. With a washing machine that doesn't work. So now what do you do? Well, now you have to learn about laundromats in Israel. Well, what I did because I didn't want it to get uh, moldy a lot of people in Israel, especially in the South, they hang dry their clothing, which is what I had done on the first previous load, which threw me off. I had to go to the Makolet down the street, the little grocery store, convenience store, just to get clothespins because yeah. I realized, oh no, there's no dryer here. Yeah, no, you're hanging out the window, hanging all the clothes right, up, right outside the window. But then that night, it's supposed to rain, and it's windy, and it's pouring. It's going to pour. So at 4.30 in the morning, I wake up, and I hear the wind, and I hear the rain starting. I'm like, oh, no. All this clothing's outside. 4.30 in the morning, in my pajamas, hanging out the window, pulling in all of the items of clothing and lying them all over our kitchen on the every cabinet handle, on the table in there, on the back of chairs, on our dining room table, on the couch on the little bar that's in front of the oven, the little bar that's on top of a doorway, everywhere is full of clothing. I go to the second bedroom, take off the mattress off the cot, and I lay all of the socks, like the under all those little delicate things, on this wire frame. <laughs> it's everywhere. So the apartment's covered in laundry because you can't, you can't let it sit in a bag, a wet bag for two days, three days. It's gonna start getting moldy, the clothes. And we had to go away for Shabbos, so I right. couldn't even do the laundry. Oh, no, I tried to do the laundry on Friday, but things are closed on Friday, so I couldn't go to a laundromat. Right. Laundromat here in Demona is not open. You know, he, he says he's reopening Sunday or Monday. So what are you doing? No washer machine, a bunch of wet, soapy clothes in a bag. So you start spreading it all over the apartment, literally cover the apartment. So that was, you know, a whole fun ordeal. So, you know, evidently every week here... We have a nice little project, a little, you know, Hashem sees the... A testament to our faith. <laughs> she, Hashem sees that we're bored and he gives us stuff to do. The point is, now, I'm not saying that this is everyone's experience. These are obviously fun times, crazy times. You look back, you see pictures, you laugh at them. Everyone on their journey, in their process of moving, experiencing new things, is going to come across their handful, their list of craziness. You could either dance in the rain or weep and cry. When these things happen, we remain positive and happy. We're decisive. We make decisions. We figure it out and you move on in life and you learn from it. 
what we learned from you know, from these, this entire situation is, are many things. First of all, about quality of apartments. The quality that we're in is very typical here in Israel, but guess what? For a couple hundred dollars more, you could get a brand new apartment in a new development. It also made us look into and start learning about appliances. Does everybody hang dry or do some people have dryers? What kind of dryers? What's the big deal about washing and drying here in Israel? Do they have name brand? Don't they have name brand? When we were in Beersheba, this caused us to get into all these conversations with the nice individual that we met over there for Shabbos. He's rocking the LG washer dryer, right? Yep. And, and, and he says it's not so expensive by American standards to buy a washer and dryer, even name brand. So having these experiences is almost so important and beneficial. Well, so otherwise you would never think about all these aspects or look into all these aspects. Well, yeah, on Friday after the washing machine went, when we were talking with my sister-in-law who lived here, she was saying that you have to bring a washing machine and a dryer from America. The oven, the fridge, all these other things you can get here. But she said that's the one thing that they brought. So now we have a pallet, only a pallet. We're not bringing a whole lift. We're thinking, do we have to buy a washing machine and a dryer and send another pallet to send it over? So now we have the cost of the machines, the cost to send it over. Does that make sense? It might, seeing how things are going here, it might. And then over Shabbos, and talking with people, we realize that's not the case. So you plan for one thing, and then you think that a different plan might happen, neither of them might happen. You never know where it's going to take you. And now moving forward, when we come officially, we know we're going to buy a washing machine and a dryer. And we could buy it right here. It's, it's cheaper to actually buy it right here, even if you buy name brand, versus buying there and importing um, and paying for the shipping. And, and so, so you learn from all these experiences, quality of apartments, deal making, when negotiating, you know, leases and apartments, appliances, so on and so forth. So that's basically the story of, of our planning, of our Aliyah, the early stages of it, our pilot trip. One thing that we can say in just two, three very short weeks it feels like home. Israel feels like home. Feel calm, peaceful. It feels comfortable here. Right. More comfortable than even I had imagined. And I knew what Israel was in the sense of culture and living. We came with ease. We came with faith. And everything is just beautiful and smooth and comfortable. The biggest aspect I, I would say is potentially the lack of Hebrew. I said earlier in this episode, you know, if we could just learn Hebrew growing up in these schools, I didn't go to a normal school by any means, ultra-Orthodox, but you will be lost without a language, and that's why we plan on learning the language. But that one factor aside, that's also part of the fun, making those mistakes, saying some words, hitting the right spot maybe having someone chuckle at you. It's all part of that experience. But I would say for us in, in this very smooth transition, the language barrier might be the biggest factor. But outside of that, if there's any worry about feeling comfortable, feeling at home, if an aliyah is done right, planned right, and you know what you're getting yourself into, it feels amazing. So much better than I had planned, so much smoother. 
so much straightforward. It's it just feels no different. You just feel like you're home. You're with your brethren. You're with your people. You don't feel out of place anywhere. You're everything is Jewish. You know, I like to always joke that in America we're practicing Judaism. In Israel, you're living Judaism because in America you're essentially in a secular land, trying to exercise Judaism and your religious practices. In Israel, you're in a Jewish land where everyone is Jewish. You know, almost everyone is Jewish. Even the secular. Their schedules go around the Jews. Everything revolves around the concept of of Jews and the way that Jews operate. If it's a holiday, whether the person is secular or not, they're still greeting you on the holiday. Happy Hanukkah, Happy Pesach. Whether he's keeping it or not doesn't matter. He's a Jewish person, and the country is observing the holiday. So there's an aspect of living Judaism here that you experience intrinsically, whereas in the states and in secular countries, you're practicing or you're trying to. You're trying to fit in while still keeping to your customs. I definitely feel that. And for me, I've been here about three weeks now. And how many times, Nate, have I told you, it's crazy. I didn't expect to feel so comfortable so quickly, so fast. You kind of knew you would. I did not come in thinking that. I suspect that I would, but I, I didn't either oh. think it would be to this degree. I'm, I'm also surprised by the level of comfort and ease. My mind is blown. I, it is a miracle to me. It is wondrous how right and just like inner peace and equilibrium I feel being here i can't explain it yeah and i i think i would attribute that to two things one just pure blessings so hashem has guided us and he's guiding us so hashem is blessing us with good feelings the other is decisive planning knowing what we were getting ourselves into proper organizing basically we did our hishtadlut and then the other half is just hashem does the rest and doing it together doing it together as a unity, as, as a unit, as a team, um, being that we are in a relationship and that is how we executed this move, yeah. Certainly, you know, if we're talking about marriage and relationships, there's so much to be said, you know, in, in that respect as well. Um, I'm going to wrap this up by saying that, you know, so this is where we're holding now. We essentially gave you a full history of you know, going way back to the early days of, of the, the concept and the desire all the way into where we are today. So me and Sharon are going to continue looking at different towns. The delay between everything we're looking at now on our quote-unquote pilot trip and going back to the United States for some weeks and then having Pesach, which we often spend Passover in the Caribbean um, on, the, on the program. Uh, what what's on the, royal passover right the royal passover program um so there might be a nice chunk of weeks that we're going to be away from what we now consider our home israel however that gap is actually going to serve to benefit us because we're checking out a lot of places hearing a lot of opinions speaking to a lot of people finding our love our joy in certain areas it'll be interesting to see how all of this information sinks in and how we feel about it when we're away from it, how we feel about Israel when we're away from it. Yeah, that's that's exactly what I'm getting at. 
it's allowing us, it's blessing us with the ability to make a rational decision. So we don't feel pressured that we have to make a decision right away and jump into anything. It's, it's a beautiful and very mindful way to approach this entire thing. We're spending weeks checking out many different towns, speaking to a lot of people, and then we have a couple week break, let it all sink in, make a decision, find your apartment and move in. So that's essentially what we're doing and we're thankful for that, for that gap. What we're gonna do in terms of, of this podcast, so this was part one, um, probably in some weeks or more likely some months after we settle in officially to the land, we're gonna record part two with an update and to continue to express our journey and how it's going. And then potentially from there, maybe a year or two or three later, do a final part with some final thoughts with a lot more experience behind us. So this is probably going to be a two, three, four part series, but it's going to be spread over a long period of time because we, we wanted to do this because I think I'll forget a lot of, I already, I think even in expressing this multi-hour episode, we probably forgot a lot of points, but as time goes on, I'm not, we're not going to remember all these intricate little details and all these thoughts that we have now. So by putting this out there now, we got all of that recorded in a couple months or a couple months after we settle in completely, we could record again to explain how that is or what we've learned from now until then. And then finally, maybe some years in again. So that basically wraps things up. Thank you for joining Sharon. If there's anything else that you want to share on this topic, go for it. No, thank you for having me. Thank you everyone for listening. And I'm really excited for our update to tell you how the actual official Aliyah goes, the process of sending our stuff over. Thank you for having me. It was a lot of fun to express this. I also have a cool idea that I want to share that pertains to Israel a little bit for my YouTube channel. I, I came up with this concept because when, when we were in America and we were checking out different towns like Damona and stuff, you remember I was going on YouTube and I was trying to pull up videos of these towns that I was looking at on the map. Yeah, just trying just... to learn the map, the geography, even the topography. I just wanted to see what the land looked like because we were, you know, we're into flat and certain style, you know, aesthetics. And I wasn't finding a lot on YouTube in terms of these little towns. So I came up with an idea recently, something to look out for on my YouTube channel. I'm going to get myself a camera where I can film these towns just either a walkthrough or a drive-through or maybe a ride-through with a bicycle, just for people who are interested to see what these towns look like without any commentary or anything like that, just seeing what the streets, the people, the day-to-day -day look like. I'm going to get myself a camera. I'm going to start going through these towns with a camera. I'm going to post them on YouTube. So if you're interested in, in any specific town, if you're interested in seeing what a certain town looks like, you know, shoot me a message. And, and maybe I'll do those first. Um, otherwise, just you know, keep a lookout for that and make sure you subscribe to get our updates that are soon to come. Other than that, uh, really thankful. If you've made it this far, that means perhaps you have a desire. Um, if you do have a desire for the land, we bless you, Mesh, and bless you with, with success in your move. It should come with as much organization and ease as it did for us. And I hope to see you in the land soon. Thank you so much for tuning in. God bless you.